This show will begin shortly after these messages from our advertisers. Advertising is what keeps the show alive. Your support means they'll continue to advertise and the podcast will continue to be free. This statement has not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Are you in bad pain? You know what I mean. Your knees hurt, your shoulder hurts, and your back. Oh my God, your back. They're constantly killing you. And I'm sure you've tried every pain pill or cream available at the drugstore. Am I right? Well, here is something you haven't tried. Pain Absolve. Pain Absolve is not available in any drugstore. The only way to get it is by calling today. We're so confident that it will work for you that we offer a free bottle with your purchase. No prescription needed. And best of all, each purchase comes with a money-back guarantee. Call now to find out how you can get Pain Absolve and get rid of your pain. Call 800-261-0783. That's 800-261-0783. 800-261-0783. Call today. 800-261-0783. Are you lacking a little something between paranormal and abnormal? You need the Into the Paranormal store. Now open at ParabnormalRadio.com. From hoodies to shirts, accessories, and our digital music library, it's all available in the Into the Paranormal store. Your purchase directly helps support the show. Thanks for buying from the Into the Paranormal store at ParabnormalRadio.com. Sign up with BetMGM Sports using code CHAMPION200 and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 Moneyline wager on any Major League Baseball game and either team hits a home run. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500. Place. Aliens haven't contacted us so far, except maybe in the state of Arizona. Major sighting here. They are not what they claim to be. We are controlling transmission. There's not an alien force already among us. There's something out here. I'll be in your head before you wake up. I felt like something was near me. They don't know they're dead. Holy Originating from a remote location, nearly as top secret as Area 51. We have made contact with extraterrestrials. My phone rings, I pick it up. It's your program on there. Now you tell me how that happened. Somewhere between abnormal and paranormal. These glowing objects crash and then hundreds of red eyes are coming at them. You're traveling on the edge of midnight. Into the Paranormal with Jeremy Scott.
Hey, good evening to you from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. I am Jeremy Scott, and it's time to go somewhere between abnormal and paranormal. Stories that you will not hear elsewhere, broken down like you will hear no other place than right here on Into the Paranormal. And tonight, we're going to get deep into these subjects, including alien implants, the Tic Tac UFO, Skinwalker Ranch, Bob Lazar, the Flatwoods Monster UFO. It is a plethora-filled program tonight. And I encourage you to uh, take down this number and keep it handy in case there's anything that strikes you as uh, wanting to react to. Uh, We are a uh, program that loves to take your calls. 818-672-6865 is the call-in number. That's 818-672-6865. You can also Skype into Parabnormal is the Skype handle. If you've been to ParabnormalRadio.com in the past few days, you've seen a new lookout. I'd be interested in your take on that, whether you love it or you hate it. Uh, There's a contact uh, section there, and I would love to hear from you. You should find everything up and working. Uh, I've done as much testing as uh, possible. So uh, if you find anything that uh, is is not working as you think it should, uh, well, let me know. I would certainly love that. Uh, I'd rather know now than six months from now that something hasn't been working. Uh, For all of you subscribers, everything should remain the same. Just will look a little bit different. Um, we'll, we'll do that uh, from time to time just to keep things fresh. want to welcome our new affiliate tonight in uh, Noonan, Georgia on WQEE 99.1 FM, Rock the Key. Uh, thanks to Ryan O'Neill for putting us on down south. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, if for no other reason uh, you call tonight just to say uh, your thoughts on the program, that would be awesome. Love to hear from uh, some of you down in uh, Georgia. Uh, tonight as uh, you're getting the program for the very first time. Live for three hours every single Saturday night. You can follow at Paranormal Show on Facebook and on Twitter. I would love it if you if you did that. Um, and you'll get all the information uh, about this program in one place. We don't uh, clutter your feed. Uh, we, we, we don't even sometimes during the week tweet, uh, tweet even once a day. Uh, just when stuff is relevant. So we'd love to have you uh, following along uh, throughout the program. Well, um, we're going to have um, John Jeter at some point tonight with his paranormal news. Um, it is not going to be at the bottom of the hour here. Uh, John is okay. He's he's fine. Everything's good and well. Um, it's just that uh, we're, uh, we're running in a little behind on that. So uh, John Jeter will be coming up at some point in time tonight. Uh, for those of you who will hear this on the podcast, it will be as if it didn't exist because we'll we'll produce the newscast that you're going to miss here at the bottom of the hour and uh, add it into the podcast. Uh, you say podcast? Yes, we do have podcasts available at uh, parabnormalradio.com. For very, very little of your financial contribution, you can get access to this program. And the audio files are crystal clear audio processed uh it sounds like you're listening to a real radio show there's no ups and downs or clicks and bangs and crashes um it sounds really good if you ask me of course i'm a radio guy so uh i'm a stickler about uh, all that uh, stuff but at some point tonight john jeter is going to be telling us about a deadly pathogen one that cannot be stopped if you think uh 
the avian flu or heck even the zika virus or something to really worry about you just wait until you hear about this one at the bottom of the hour also sad to report the passing of stephen hawking we'll hear some of uh, his most uh classic sound bites from mr hawking uh during a paranormal newscast tonight also there is a solar flare headed at us that is going to cause some headaches in more ways than one also good idea to nuke an asteroid well it's in the development stages. That's all coming up uh, in Parabnormal News with uh, John Jeter um, uh, tonight here on this program. Well, uh, just after we went off the air uh, last week uh, came this new video, at least uh, hit the mainstream of this third video, I guess it is, from the To The Stars Academy. That's the group uh, headed by uh, Blink-182's former frontman, Tom DeLonge, who is big into the UFO uh, field these days, has created the uh, To The Stars Academy uh, involving several uh, supposedly high-ranking officials. And these are, these are uh, legitimate people uh, who have had positions uh, in government and uh, in, in branches of the military and, and whatnot. So he, he does... He does have some some tools in his arsenal. Well, he's released videos of apparent uh, UFO encounters that should get us all to really question uh, what it is that is uh, happening in our skies and what our governments are not telling us. Because you would have to agree they are not telling us an awful lot. Well, there's this. So these two videos that came out uh, in mid-December, uh, timed out uh, right around the time of the announcement from the Pentagon, the Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program that was funded by former Nevada Senator Harry Reid out of the uh, DOD budget, budget uh, kind of a secret deal that uh, – you know, turned out Luis Elizondo, the former head of that program, has said, hey, look, this thing is still going on. Let's not be naive just because I'm not running the program doesn't mean uh, that it is not being run. So Tom DeLong's group releases these videos uh, right around the time of this Pentagon announcement about three months ago, actually, is, is where we're at as far as all that is concerned. And uh, then the DOD comes out and says, uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency, I believe, DIA, uh, says, hey, those did not come from us. We don't know how those got out. Now, Tom DeLong and his To The Stars Academy had to get them from someone. And I asked that question long ago. Who was the leaker? Was it Luis Elizondo? Uh, was it somebody else, somebody that we don't know or um, somebody that we will never know? Um, or is it somebody that's just standing right out there in plain view and we're not paying attention to them? Well, so there were those two videos and then the rebuttal saying, hey, those weren't from us. And now uh, there's another video just released in the last week that has another 3.5 million views on it. It's apparently one of these, um, what they call fast-moving UFOs. Now, using an infrared camera system, To the Stars Academy says this video comes from a U.S. Navy F-A-18 Super Hornet during a flight in 2015 that appears to show a fast-moving UFO flying over water. And one of the voices on the video seems to be a pilot saying, 
whoa, what is that man? Now, it's only a couple of seconds long. Tom Crossan, a uh, spokesperson for the Office of the Secretary of Defense, says the DOD did not release this, these videos, and he cannot confirm their authenticity, does not have any additional information to provide. Well, um, now here's this other video out there, and I guess the question is whether or not uh, it is actually what it is. Um some people are saying it's just birds. Uh, quite frankly, I think the people who use the analogies that these are birds and they're balloons are loony. <laughs> uh, they are loony. Quite frankly, they are loony saying that these are birds and these are balloons. Now, maybe they've seen a case or two in their time that might meet that definition, but the majority of these do not. So... I would encourage you to check out the video for yourself, uh, and then you tell me what you think of it. YouTube says it is cracking down on conspiracy videos. Alex Jones isn't the only one being uh, 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 targeted by YouTube. Videos about the earth being flat, or about the, uh, the Sandy Hookers, the hoaxers. The people who believe that none of these school shootings ever happened, those folks who say everything's a false flag, all of those kinds of uh, misinformation, propaganda, fake news, however you want to say it, those are ending up all over YouTube. And as I've said, there are people who put out junk, who put out bogus crap that makes more money in a day on advertising clicks than you and I do in a week by putting crap up there and getting paid for it. Doesn't that irritate you? It, it does irritate me because, you know, I work hard for my money. And, and here these people don't. They just put something up there and they just check their AdSense or whatever every day and say, oh, I have this much money. It was a $100 day. Imagine if you had a $100 day, $3,100 a month, you could live off of that. You, uh, you, you times that by uh, however many times you're able to, to keep that up, and it's more money than, than you and I are making. It's more money than you and I are making, and, and YouTube finally has to do something about it. Uh, they say it's part of a broader initiative to crack down on misinformation. And I don't think that this is the end of it. I I wish uh, I wish uh, YouTube would go after these guys, and I'm not going to name their names because then you'll you'll just go look them up, and you'll play their fake videos, and they will get something out of me that they shouldn't. They should not get a plug from me because they are not putting out information that is real. Well, as you know, Stephen Hawking passed away, age of 76. And certainly his um, contributions to society, uh, well, they're known. We know what kind of legacy Stephen Hawking uh, left behind. But it is a legacy in which he will speak about later on that he hopes people remember besides just an appearance on The Simpsons. And I, I think that, that Stephen Hawking's name will be 
cemented uh, in time for uh, for many generations. So if if my generation is not keeping Stephen Hawking's um, lineage uh, going after he passes, you know, not telling our kids about Stephen Hawking, then it's a shame because his contributions uh, certainly are, uh, well, they were tireless, his tireless contributions, but I'm sure many of, of his works won't fully be realized, kind of like Einstein's theory of general relativity that didn't really come to be officially confirmed for 100 years well after he had passed. I think there's a lot that we're going to find out that Stephen Hawking was right about. I don't agree with him on everything, particularly some of his uh, theories on extraterrestrial life and invasions and stuff like that. Uh, I think he's just a little bit behind the times on some of that stuff. Speaking of a man who's not behind the times, Stanton Friedman, longtime UFO researcher. The man's in his 80s, and I'm still kind of shocked that he accepts radio interviews and he travels uh, from the Atlantic time zone in Canada, which is four hours uh, ahead of where I am, an hour ahead of uh, Eastern time. And he'll travel into the States and he'll travel all over the place to give lectures. He is a popular guy. But uh, Stanton Friedman knew one day he would have to retire. And uh, the day has come. Stanton Friedman, who's been on this program even just a couple of months ago in our Project Disclosure show, he was a big part of it talking about the announcement out of the Pentagon, which we'll talk about more uh, with Jeremy Corbell. He's got some thoughts on that uh, in the uh, second half of the program uh, tonight. So we will uh, talk about that a little bit more. But yeah, Stanton Friedman uh, is retiring, and uh, he will not... uh, He says he's going to watch the internet, but that's about it. So you might be able to send him some fan mail. I'm sure he'll, he'll be maybe writing an article or certainly reading others and giving his feedback as I would imagine he would but but he's kind of uh taking himself out of the limelight which is uh I think uh really cool for him and if you haven't seen Stanton Friedman live uh boy you you missed an opportunity I would start to go through YouTube videos right now and to see what you can find because uh he is a gem and uh I I certainly understand um, you know, why he would want to uh, step out of the public light after being involved uh, in more than 50 years. He's been, he's been doing this since like 1967, so more than 50 years. And uh, I don't think much is going to come out in the next 20 or the next 10 that would, would be enough to, to keep him in the field. So I think we owe uh, both of those two men, Stephen Hawking and uh, Stanton Friedman, a tip of our, of our hats and and probably uh, much more than that. All right, September 12th, 1952. Doesn't ring a bell? Well, it's one of the most famous legends in modern history that occurred on that date, September 12th, 1952. An entity reported in the town of Flatwoods, West Virginia, which is in Braxton County. What witnesses reported are stories that fit the bill of a close encounter of the third kind. You know, those close encounter... Uh, definitions made famous by J. Allen Hynek. 
This is a close encounter of the third kind. We spent some time on that a couple of months ago on the program. Well, tonight we're going to unlock a decades-old mystery that included a government-ordered military examination of a purported alien crash site and multiple UFOs seen by countless residents. Two remaining witnesses set the record straight in the new film, The Flatwoods Monster, A Legacy of Fear. That's going to be released in just a few weeks. And here is the filmmaker, Seth Breedlove. He has written, edited, produced, and directed shorts and features about a variety of topics. But he's best known for his production company and the films that they've produced under the Small Town Monsters banner. Uh, Seth, it's a, a privilege to have you here on the program. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. So um, let's get some background on this event. Uh, September 12th, as I mentioned, 1952. What what type uh, time of day was the uh, Flatwood Monsters uh, UFO incident reported? Well, it, it depends on which part of the incident you're you're talking about. The incident sort of covered, you know, about an hour, two hour span of time. Um, I think think from from what I can recall about what Fred told me, it would have been about five o'clock in the afternoon. Um, they were playing football on a local field and the sun was setting um, when they saw this object sort of streak across the sky and land on top of a nearby hill. So it was it was later in the afternoon and these five kids were just, you know, having a good time like you do in the uh in a small town like Flatwoods. They were just playing football. And uh this object goes overhead and they started up the hill to investigate the the cr- whatever they had seen land. Um along the way they they stopped at their house which is sort of right on the way up the hill and they stopped at their house and picked up their mom. Um, Mrs. May and a visiting cousin, Jean Lemon, and started up the hill. By the time they had reached the top of the hill, it was almost dark. It wasn't quite dark yet, um, but it was definitely getting there. All right, so the sun is setting. Um, this object appears, um, and uh, these two adults and, uh, and two children uh, go on a pursuit of this object. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And once once they once they get to the top of the hill. So so I guess what what the thinking was is that maybe there was some sort of mineral or something. Um what they thought they had seen go overhead was a meteor or meteorite and they wanted to go investigate that. Um one of their teachers at school had told them if you see a meteor crash to the ground, make sure you you go to the site and try to retrieve something, you know, so you have something to show for it at school. So their thinking was maybe they would go up and find some sort of, you know, mineral of some sort. So they, they were going up to investigate it. And, um, you know, on the way up, they they supposedly encountered a UFO that had seemingly crash landed. So this would have been prior to their actual encounter with the with the monster. It just depends on um, who you're, who, whose version of the story you're hearing. The way the story has been reported for sort of decades doesn't exactly ring true to what the original witnesses are claiming happened. So the, you know, the way, the way it's reported is that they went up this hill, they get to the top of the hill, they see a downed object. Um, they encounter the strange glowing mist um, there was a dog that was with them. The dog runs into the mist and uh, becomes violently ill, runs away down the hill, um, and, and eventually vomits and, and dies, actually, ac- according to the story that's been told for, you know, again, decades. Um, 
but the fact is that there doesn't necessarily seem to be um, a, a lot of uh, agreement between original witnesses and such on what exactly happened on top of the hill, other than the fact that once they were up to the top of the hill, they did encounter some sort of 13-foot-tall um, metallic uh, creature or you know, meta- mechanical being, whatever you want to call it, um, on top of the hill that startled them. Um, seemed to hover toward them, and they turned and ran. Um, other than that section of the story, there isn't a lot of agreement on what happened up at the top of the hill. For instance, well, let's hold let's hold that thought right there. We are at the bottom of the hour, just a short segment to kind of get a a uh, early, uh, I guess, introduction to this topic, and we have much more to cover with Seth Breedlove. Uh, the new movie coming out uh, in just a couple of weeks, The Flatwood Monsters. Uh, Flatwood's monster, a legacy of fear. He's the filmmaker. We'll continue coming up in just a couple of moments. I'm Jeremy Scott from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. Stick with us. Into the Paranormal is streaming 24-7 on the TuneIn Radio app and at ParanormalRadio.com. Hi folks, Ronnie here from Life Change Tea. There's a lot of hubbub about the ramifications of GMOs. First of all, what are GMOs? Genetically modified organisms. Yee! Man-made organisms entering our body, changing and damaging us from the inside out. What's our defense? First of all, not eating them. Second, cleansing from them when we do eat them. Thank God for Life Change Tea at GetTheTea.com. Life Change Tea cleanses from toxins, heavy metals, and helps flush GMOs out of your body. Our unique blend of herbs help cleanse you from the inside out, helping you feel refreshed and clean of Yee! We also carry unique one-of-a-kind supplements. So order online at getthetea.com. That's getthetea.com. Rid yourself of the yee that contaminates your food and water. Go to getthetea.com. That's getthetea.com. Get the tea. Your best defense. Make sure to select Into the Paranormal at checkout. Getthetea.com. This is Paranormal News. I'm John Jeter. Thought you were lethargic from the time change last week? Well, just wait until tomorrow's solar flare. Oh, haven't heard about that, huh? The Russian Academy of Sciences says the sun will eject a solar flare in our direction that will trigger a geomagnetic storm. It has the potential to disrupt satellites, GPS, and other communication systems, and uh, ATM machines, by the way, and cause massive damage to them. Although NASA is not expecting an event of that magnitude, it can also have quite an impact on the human body. Migraine headaches, increased risk of stroke, disrupted sleep cycles, depression, dizziness, moments of incoherence, and erratic behaviors. So now you know what's up if everyone around you is a little off. This will be the third solar storm this year to hit planet Earth. China Space Station update. Hey! The ailing Tiangong-1 is slowly but surely on its way to implosion. The space station is expected to head for the lower peninsula of Michigan on April 3rd. Whoa, man. But it could end up in the northern states or a variety of foreign countries. Scientists with Aerospace Corporation say there's no reason to freak out that the odds are in the millions of being hit by debris and you'd have a better chance of winning the lottery. While they're really what they're saying is... Take your chances and hope they're not wrong. Connect with the news at ParabnormalRadio.com. I'm John Jeter, and this is Parabnormal News. 
there were 14 young people who were playing football on a small field in the bottom of a little valley in the village of Flatwood. And one of the kids looked up and he said, what on earth is that? Around the edge of a hill behind the village, the north of the village, at lower than the peak of that hill or the one opposite it, came a glowing red object which was pulsing from cherry red to bright orange according to all the witnesses. Uh, it looked like it was mechanical, sort of like a rocket. Well, as far as for myself, you know, it, it, it doesn't make any difference, you know, whether people believe me or whether they don't. It's not so much whether they believe it or don't believe about it. It's part of our folklore and flatwood. of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. You're traveling into the paranormal with Jeremy Scott. It's West Virginia folklore tonight. We're talking about the Flatwoods monster, and my guest is Seth Breedlove. We've just been getting into some into some introductory material on this uh, event, which happened in September of 1952. What we've learned so far is it was late in the afternoon. The sun was setting. These glowing objects streak across the sky over much of the eastern seaboard. And one of the objects in question was seen to land on a hill near the small community of Flatwoods, Virginia, by a group of children who were out playing. Well, these children and adults go to the top of the hill, hoping to find a sign of this object. And as Seth was telling us, and I'll let you can uh, complete your thoughts, Seth, um, there is, um, I guess, not a consensus over what those uh, that foursome uh, encountered or, or, or how that went down. Yeah, it, it's one of those stories that's been sort of uh, changed and added to. Um, we refer to it in the movie a lot as lore, um, almost like it's a, a modern myth that's that's sort of being um, changed over the years. And, and we've definitely seen that be the case. Um, <clears throat> the, the fact is that the, the all you can really do is go off of what the original witnesses claim happened, despite the fact that some of these things that we kind of take as fact uh, that occurred that night have been repeated for decades and by some, you know, very reputable sources. What you played the trailer for the movie earlier and and the voice you were actually hearing was Ivan T. Sanderson, um, who's sort of a famous cryptozoologist and researcher of the paranormal. Um, and Ivan Sanderson was actually at, in Flatwoods just about a week after the event and interviewed witnesses and all sorts of stuff. But it does appear that some of the things that were being said had happened may not have actually happened according to witnesses. So, again, all we really know from the witnesses that they encountered that night is that they saw something go across the sky and they went up to the top of this hill to see what it was and what they encountered. There seemed to be a 13-foot-tall mechanical being that um, hovered toward them. One thing that Fred May, who was one of the people we interviewed, um, one thing that Fred told us is that when he first saw 
the being, the Flywoods monster, um, it actually seemed to be looking into the sky. Um, and it had its beams, as he referred to them, which would have been sort of its eyes. Um, but the, the light beams that were coming from the, the portholes that most people take to be eyes, um, those were pointed, pointed skyward. And when they shined the flashlight on the thing, uh, the beams actually came down, focused on them, and then it started moving toward them, at which point they took off down the hill. And for them, for, for for the kids, for Mrs. May, for Gene Lemon, that's sort of where their their uh, story ends as far as that you know encounter goes. Um, but it it is really fascinating to see the story, the story uh, just be changed and added to over over the decades and and sort of become something completely different. Uh, it's almost like that game telephone that people yeah, play, you know. That. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds you of that sort of thing. There's, I mean, even the way the creature looks, um, if you can call it a creature, even the way the, the Flatwoods monster looks is so different from what the original witnesses described seeing in most of the sort of illustrations that you see. You know, what they described seeing was a very uh, robotic, um, th- mechanical thing. You know, they said, Fred May said it wasn't, whatever they saw wasn't alive. It was it was a mechanical object. Did you ever uh, did anybody ever speak with uh, with either the kids or the adults uh, who went to the top of the hill? Well, that's that's we we interviewed. Obviously, we interviewed Ed and Fred May, who were two of the kids that were there. Um, they would have actually been two of the the ones that that saw it, and they're they're the only two living witnesses that we're positive are living the, there's possibly one other um person that was there that night who may still be alive it's just no one knows where his whereabouts are there was a guy named ron uh i want to say ronnie schaefer now i can't remember that i'm saying this and he might still be alive but as far as the original witnesses ed and fred may are the only two that we know are living and we did manage to interview them um, Fred has talked about this on camera before, but Ed has actually never spoken about the incident to anyone, um, including even Fred, his own brother. Um, he's, he, Fred actually told me after we had interviewed them that it was the first time he had heard um, Ed actually tell his uh, sort of version of events, um, you know, what he remembered from that night. So I thought that was that was kind of interesting. Um as far as after the original incident, Gray Barker, who's sort of a, a renowned, um, infamous, I guess would probably be a better word, uh, infamous, infamous uh, UFO and, and paranormal flying saucer uh, researcher uh, from the 1950s and 60s, he um, actually showed up in Flatwoods just days after the event. So he was even there ahead of Ivan Sanderson. And both of them did a a decent amount of work um, talking with witnesses and getting information from around the area. The thing that, um, the thing that bothers me about Barker and uh, to a lesser extent, even Sanderson is we just don't know there's no way for us to verify what they're claiming. So they, they're claiming to have had conversations with people and, and that they hear this and they hear this, but there's no way to verify that. And normally I would take someone like Sanderson's word, except Sanderson's version of events 
and the the actual witnesses Ed and Fred May who were there those those two versions of events don't necessarily always line up so what we do in our film is sort of tell you the story in the best way we can it, it, by letting Sanderson's original audio recording sort of tell the story and then sort of playing that off of what Ed and Fred May are, are, are actually saying. So you're getting sort of both sides of the story. Um, and then, you know, it's kind of up to, to people to sort of make up their mind about what might have happened that night. So uh, that answers the next question, which is, did, did uh, the group ever make it back? And the answer to that is yes. Um, how many people on the ground, Seth, do uh, we believe actually saw this event that these uh, four went uh, in search of answers for. Sure, I mean it, it was it was five boys, and then on the way up, they stopped at their house and they picked up um, Mrs. May and their and their cousin. So it would have been about seven people um, that actually reached the top of the hill. One of the you. boys was only five years old, um, and he couldn't see over the fence. What what happened is when they get to the top of the hill. There's a there's a fence and they're actually climbing over this fence when they see the creature. So some of the kids never even made it over the fence. The little five year old boy was still standing on the other side of the fence and he never saw anything. So the the six people that actually saw the creature are the original witnesses. That's that's Ed and Fred May. That's Mrs. May, who was their mother, um, Jean Lemon. Ronnie Shaver, I believe is his last name, and I forget the other boy's name. Um, but that's that's sort of the the party as it was, you know, when they when they got to the top of that hill. Um, again, there's there is this there is this element of the story where people have claimed that they get halfway up the hill and they see this downed object that they believe the Flatwoods monster had actually come out of. And that would be the object that the boys had seen streaking across the sky earlier. The, the issue I have with that is Ed and Fred may don't, don't recall ever seeing a UFO at all. So is this an incident where they, you know, very often in UFO cases, there is sort of a memory loss element. You know, there's, there's, that could be some sort of UFO, um, artifact or something that you know happened to them because of seeing it or it could be that it didn't happen however their mom and gene lemon both claimed that they did see an object so for sure we do have gene lemon and mrs may claiming to have seen the object uh, the ufo it's just none of the kids said they saw it as far as uh, additional physical features we know this was a mechanical being uh, it was about 13 feet tall from uh, what we've been hearing now, there were some other uh, descriptive um, features involving its face, uh, its head, may or may not have had uh, arms, or can you uh, fill us in on some of that? Yeah, I mean, again, this is one of those parts of the story that's that's very strange, and we represent the creature in our film in basically every possible visual way you can imagine so every way you've heard this creature described over the years it's going to show up in our film um through animation and cgi but but when it comes down to is the original witnesses claimed they saw a 13 foot tall uh mechanical object that hovered and th they said it looked very much like a v2 rocket uh, which the Germans had during during World War II and shortly after, um, 
this would have been very similar to a V2 rocket with sort of an ace of spades um, on on its, I guess what you would call its head. Um, the, there were two portholes, not eyes, portholes, as, as Fred May said, that were sort of near the top within the ace of spades uh, configuration uh, toward the top of the body. And it, it, you know, it, it was metallic in color and the metallic color was sort of uh, reflecting the green from the grass and the, the shrubbery and stuff and stuff that was around it. Um, Which is why when they gave the description initially, um, they had said it was a green color. They never actually said it was a green monster. They said it was reflecting the green from the ground around it. For some reason, the media picked up on that green element of the, of their description and ran with it. And, and in most newspapers and um, even, even in the town's sign, like the, the, the Flatwoods uh, welcome to Flatwoods signs. When you come into town, it says home of the green monster. So it, it became one of those elements of the story that has been sort of repeated over and over, but they never actually said it was a green creature. It was metallic gray and reflected the, the grass and stuff on the ground. It had a red face um, or a face plate, however you want to say it, that the eyes were actually, the portholes were actually in. Um, and Fred told us uh, um, he got the impression there was something or someone inside of the the unit, inside of the monster, like controlling it or, or operating it. And I don't know what that's based on. I don't know if he saw movement inside of the portholes but um, you know, according to him, it was sort of like a hovering rocket with something inside controlling it. And as far as its uh, its arms and fingers, did it have those? So there are some uh, okay, yeah, varying this reports is another, about that. Yeah, this is another one of those elements that's sort of uh, all over the place. The you know the typical description you th- you conjure or you can see if you Google search the Flatwoods monster. The typical image is sort of this uh, this floating creature with sort of a almost like a wizard head um wearing sort of a greenish dress with a red face you know glowing glowing eyes and then long spindly arms with like these claw-like hands but they and and i even think some of the original newspaper articles said something about claw-like hands and spindly arms but they never saw arms um in fact the only two things that could have been construed as arms would be these two little antenna that seemed to sort of jut out from where the um i guess the head the the sort of head part of the the uh, object would have been they would have been coming out right around where you would consider something to be like the neck um or on a rocket it would be you know that the head of the the rocket um but that's it there were no according to the witnesses they didn't see hands they didn't see arms there was no you know, it wasn't anything like that. What they saw was not a um, was not a, a a creature. It was a you know some sort of mechanical object. And did did we talk about the the head that kind of looked like a sideways diamond? Yeah, they, the Ace of Spades is kind of how how they talk about it. Um, it's a very unusual description and you know if it wasn't for that you could almost just say well they probably just saw a v2 rocket right because i mean the body 13 feet tall kind of like the dimensions and everything sound about right 
but the the head having that ace of, ace of spades um, sort of, of build to it is really unusual. We actually constructed a 13-foot-tall um, Flatwoods monster replica that's in our film. And um, once we, we built it pretty much to spec, pretty much to, you know, as, as close as we could get to the original description of what the witnesses claimed to have encountered. It was 13 feet tall. Um, it was made of solid steel. It was actually over 500 pounds. Um, it was on wheels so it could hover. But when you saw it, when you actually saw this thing, um, you could see if this was close to what the original witnesses saw, and we think it was because it was based on their description, um, it definitely seems to me personally like it could have been some sort of rocket with an unusual design you know, around the top uh, or the head portion. But yeah, the, the, the Ace of Spades design at the head is really unusual. Again, Seth Breedlove is my guest. He is a filmmaker with uh, Small Town Monsters. And uh, when when is the release uh, for this uh, this uh, documentary, uh, Seth? April sixth is the day it'll hit Amazon and uh, DVD and Vimeo on demand. Uh, the Flatwoods Monster: A Legacy of Fear is the name of the movie. Uh, so uh, keep an eye out for that. Um, continuing the story, um, there was also a large pulsating red ball of light that hovered above or rested on the ground accompanying uh, this being as if it was its craft. Well, that, yeah, and again, that's that's sort of what I'm talking about. When it comes to the craft that they claim to have encountered, that's, that's the issue. That's where Ivan Sanderson and, and Gray Barker were definitely claiming for – for decades that they encountered that craft, that large orange ball of, of, of light or, or basically what they said was it was a large craft um, shaped kind of like an egg uh, actually. And that it was about the size of a small house um, and it was uh, whistling and whirling and smoking and, and all of the witnesses, all, all seven of them actually walked up on this object, walked to within feet of it. Uh, and claimed to have seen it, but that's not true. That isn't that none of the original witnesses saw it other than Mrs. May and Jean Lemon. And what they saw was not within walking distance. They saw a downed object off the side of the hill about halfway up to where they encountered the Flatwoods monster. So, so the thinking is that the object had crashed into the side of the woods and then the being had actually made its way up to the top of the hill where they eventually encountered it something worth mentioning about that hill too the bailey fisher farm is is the name of the hill it was um it was a farm and it it is the tallest point in all of braxton county um and something else probably worth mentioning at brax is braxton county is actually the the um geographical center of the state of West Virginia. I believe it's actually Flatwoods that's the geographical center of the uh, state of West Virginia. All right. So then after they go over the hill and have this contact, uh, they go on their way. Um, Is there media coverage of this uh, in the newspaper the next day? Sure, sure. And, And it wasn't just that craft that was seen that night there was something else seen streaking across the sky and crashing in a nearby town called gasaway and in fact when the 
um, when when the family went back to their house and called the local police to report this incident, the local police couldn't be couldn't be reached because they were actually out um, on the Elk River in Gasaway, which is right down the road from Flatwoods, investigating a report of a downed airplane. Um, and there was no airplane ever found, but the local police had been called out by many people about this object that had supposed to supposedly crashed nearby as well. And, and like you had mentioned earlier, multiple objects were seen streaking over the sky all over the Eastern seaboard that night. So it's, it's definitely curious, but yes, the, the local media, um, covered the story within hours of the, uh, call by Mrs. May being made to the police, uh, the editor in chief of the Braxton Democrat, um, A. Lee Stewart actually showed up uh, at the at the May's house, and A. Lee Stewart and Gene Lemon uh, went back up the hill. I believe they were accompanied by some other people as well. They went back up the hill um, to to investigate the site, and of course, when they got up there, there was nothing up there, but. Um, naturally, Ailey Stewart w- covered the story in the newspaper. He even did this sort of famous illustration, the initial, initial sketch of what the creature would have looked like, its height in comparison with a normal man. And uh, that's that's sort of become the famous image of the Flatwoods monster. But once the story hit the Braxton Democrat, it hit the AP Newswire and then it exploded and the story became very famous around the country and and then of course what happens is the there's a television show on NBC actually called We the People and what it was was a a recording a television recording of a live radio show um Mrs. May, Gene Lemon and Ailey Stewart all get flown out to New York City and are on this nationally televised uh show to actually discuss their uh, encounter with the Flatwoods monster. And of course, at that point, that's sort of the point where the, the Flatwoods monster hits the mainstream and becomes this cultural sort of icon or, or a, an iconic sort of figure. Do you know who the first person to write a book uh, about it was? Uh, I, I don't know who the first person to write a book about it was. I can tell you the first person that I know of to be doing research on the Flatwoods monster um, would have been Gray Barker followed by Ivan Sanderson. Both of them wrote books about the Flatwoods monster or wrote about the Flatwoods monster within other books. Gray Barker wrote a very long article, very detailed, that was in Fate magazine. And Ivan Sanderson wrote a book called Uninvited Visitors that I, I'm lucky enough to own a first edition of. And um, he's got a couple chapters in there where he talks about the Flatwoods monster. The case really seemed to affect Sanderson, and he he spent years sort of fixating on it within other books he would write. He would often reference the Flatwoods case. Um, as far as bringing it into the modern era, um, typically I know we hear a lot about some, uh, uh, Frank Faschino and you know there's a couple other authors who've talked about it Lauren Coleman's written about it but there's a guy um he goes by a pen name of Paul Sagan and unfortunately he died in 2009 but Paul Sagan wrote a book called Alien Flatwoods Monster and Paul was interviewing many of the original witnesses and other people connected with the case as far back as the 1970s um in fact Paul seems to be the guy that sort of uncovered the the uh, Colonel Levitt section of the story, which is where the Air Force sent out a local 
militia to to investigate the crash site. Paul Sagan actually wrote a, this book where he um, runs the, an interview that he did with Colonel Levitt all the way back in the 1970s. Has the uh, the area really seen um, much of an impact uh, by this event uh, with people coming to visit, uh, maybe hoping to at least see the area where this occurred? Yeah, to to an extent. I definitely, you know, like we, we made a movie last year about the Mothman, uh, which is sort of the biggest of the, the urban legends or folk to however you want to refer to these stories, these paranormal events. The the You know, and in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, the Mothman's an icon. Uh, there's a statue down, down, you know, right downtown and people go out to the TNT area and it's almost sort of like a Mecca for the paranormal. Um, the Flatwoods incident is not on that same level, but it's definitely got a, an interested fan base that will show up from time to time. And, you know, they want to see the places where some of these things happen. Unfortunately, uh, a local um, where the hill where the incident actually took place was bought up by a wealthy doctor and has uh, been sort of proclaimed off limits. So you can't it's private property now. You can no longer go uh, up to the spot where the encounter took place. All right. Good to know that. So uh, don't even try. Um, you might get shot down by an alien beam or something like that. I, that's I, that's I very know. true, yes. yes. All right. We'll continue uh, into the next hour with uh, Seth Breedlove. He's a filmmaker with Small Town Monsters, and we are talking about The Flatwoods Monster, A Legacy of Fear, 1952, A Glowing Objects. A Glowing Objects send folks into the woods to look for answers. And what uh, they find is a 13-foot-tall mechanical being. More about this after the top of the hour. I'm Jeremy Scott, traveling with you somewhere between abnormal and paranormal. data and listen for free by calling 701-719-9703 courtesy of TalkStream Live. Do you take Viagra? Are you tired of overpaying for your pills? What if you could get the exact same results for a fraction of the price? Guaranteed. Well, now you can with Sildenafil, the active ingredient in Viagra. With 20 milligram generic sildenafil tablets, you get the exact same results of Viagra for less than $2 per pill. And again, the results are guaranteed. That's right, absolutely guaranteed results for a fraction of the cost of Viagra. So give your wallet a break and call us toll-free at 800-511-9761 to get your generic sildenafil delivered discreetly to your door. And of course, while saving hundreds of dollars, you'll also be saving time by saying goodbye to those long, embarrassing pharmacy lines once and for all. Again, just call 800-511-9761 and get your generic Sildenafil with a 100% money-back guarantee. Getting your pills doesn't get any easier or cheaper than this, so call 800-511-9761 now.
originating from a remote location nearly as top secret as Area 51. Yeah, and if you believe that, you'll really like this show. Into the Paranormal. And on that note, uh, John Jeter coming up with Paranormal News at the bottom of this half hour. So in about just under 30 minutes from now, we're speaking with Seth Breedlove, and he is a filmmaker with Small Town Monsters. And is the uh, work uh, the, the guy behind the work of uh, the Flatwoods Monster: A Legacy of Fear, which will be coming out uh, in early April on many of those video uh, devices that you uh, get on-demand content. I'll just go to smalltownmonsters.com, or uh, we do have uh, all uh, the links up at parabnormalradio.com, the new parabnormalradio.com. If you haven't been there, I would uh, ask that you uh, steer your browser there, check it out. Let me know if you run into any issues. Uh, all the information you should you should need uh, is right there at parabnormalradio.com, including a link to uh, the documentary if you want to pre-order it because uh, it is uh, now available for you to pre-order and then you can enjoy it uh, when it gets released to the public here in a couple of weeks. Flatwood Monster, uh, Flatwood's Monster, there's a lot of this that um, is, is uh, subjective, um, as we've heard. Uh, certain folks uh, remember certain things, others remember other things, but... Um, I don't know of one case uh, in the history of mankind where everybody agreed on every single detail and it was all reported the same way by every single person. So consider that. Uh, and there's also the fact that a lot of time has gone by. Uh, so the adults who would have witnessed that um, are no longer with us because that would have been over 60 years ago. Uh, or if they are, they are, they are up there in age and trying to recall something from all those many years ago, I don't know. Maybe the memory's foggy. Uh, the kids um, are the, the remaining witnesses that are known of, and uh, you'll hear from two of those witnesses in the film. Uh, can you tell us about uh, – you, you've told us about uh, each of those witnesses um, as children. Um, what do both of those uh, men do today? Well, they're they're both in their late seventies, um, so they're they're both retired. They've both battled um, cancer and won three times. So these these are some tough dudes, um, and they, you know, this is this is a story and an incident that they kind of would rather forget. Like they they've they've said their piece, they've they experienced it, uh, and and more or less they're ready to move on with their lives and move away from it. The one thing they wanted to do was set the record straight about exactly what they saw and exactly how it impacted their lives and their mother's life. Um, and so that's you know that's how we managed to sort of land uh, interviews with them, despite the fact that they they both are pretty much done with you know, this particular part of their lives. Um, it was not, you know, for either of them, I, I don't believe it was a, a, a positive experience. I don't believe that the fallout from it was positive or had, it had a positive impact on their lives. Um, but they do see the incident as being important um, to the history of Flatwoods and, and maybe the history of mankind. If we can discover what exactly they encountered that night, which they don't anticipate. Neither of them anticipate us ever being able to actually discover what they, they saw for themselves that night. Now I know frequently that, you know, that one of the things that 
was so negative about the incident for them and their lives is that a lot of people just assumed they went up this hill and they saw an owl uh, sitting in a tree and that's what sent them running down the hill and, you know, sort of caused the panic. But if you, if you talk to them and, and even just seeing the movie, I think um, the owl incident, the owl uh, explanation for what they encountered that night will sort of become a little bit more ludicrous uh especially after you hear their version of what they encountered, you know, what they, what they encountered that night doesn't seem to be anything all that outlandish. They saw something, you know, obviously it was, it was a sort of bizarre occurrence, but it doesn't seem, you know, as, as bizarre as some of the other paranormal um, incidents you, you hear about. And uh, of, of all the films we've made, this was our sixth film. Um, this is the one where I, I think definitely something happened. They definitely encountered something on top of the hill last night, um, that night and what it was, I don't know, but I, I definitely believe their description of what they encountered. So literally the, the last bit of information that will ever come from this case is featured in your movie because these men are no, are no, no longer going to speak about this. They are the only two remaining witnesses that we know of that are alive, and uh, eventually uh, they will move on to the other realm, and there will be nothing left except what has already been documented. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the unfortunate things about a lot of our movies, actually, is is we've we've done this before. This isn't the first time we've managed to convince witnesses who either had were having their final say on this in in the context of one of our films or it was their first and last time. But, um, you know, for, for what they told me, uh, this was, this is it. This is the, the one time you're going to hear, um, Ed talk about what happened to him that night and his version of events. And it's the last time you're going to hear Fred sort of on the record, uh, explaining, you know, what, what he recalls. And again, they're, they're both in their late seventies. So we're, you know, we're getting to the point where you don't know how much longer we're going to have them around to sort of tell these th- their version of events. What did they feel like they needed to set the record straight on? The I think the the the, the film our film sort of is about the creation of a modern myth or a, or or just a legend in general, and they wanted to set the record straight on what the impetus for that legend actually is so sure you're 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 gonna have when a story becomes this culturally significant pop culture the the story really is very popular the the character of the flatwoods monster is popular um when that happens you can lose the original the um you know the sort of the seed that it gets planted is the truth. You know, that, that original seed, if you consider that the truth, the actual incident um, that eventually sprouts into this tree of, of a massive legend. um, That's what they wanted to set the record straight on. This is what actually happened. Sure. It's become something far greater. It's become this big, you know, folk tale, but this is the incident that spawned that. So I think they're both sort of, okay with the fact that the story has become something completely different but they want people to know what actually happened to them that night um and and so people you know sort of have a a read on what the truth might have been because 
again, it just it, w- their encounter that night was nothing all that outlandish. Um, it was it was a simple walk up a hill, an encounter with something unknown, and a run back down a hill. You know, and that's about it. But if you hear it from their own, um, you know, from their their mouths, um, I don't know why it just sort of sets the entire incident in a different light for you. It certainly does. Now, what what came to be of the investigation by officials? I know that the uh, local National Guard unit was brought in. So was the Air Force. Uh, what other branches were involved and whatever came of their investigation? Did they speak publicly about any of this? Sure. So, so what happened is, and, and there's, there's, again, there's conflicting information about this as well. Um, we interviewed a guy named Dave Spinks. Dave grew up in Flatwoods, uh, in Braxton County. I've had him on once before. He's a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's from, he's from Braxton County. So he sort of grew up with this story, um, in his head. Like he knows a lot about it. He's spoke with Colonel Levitt. Um, but basically what he said is that, you know, like over the years, I've always heard there was a national guard unit that was dispatched out of Gasaway, And that's who investigated the story. According to Dave, um, it was actually, Colonel Levitt was out of the the Gasaway unit. Colonel Levitt was dispatched by the Air Force. the The unit that Colonel Levitt pulled in wasn't necessarily a Gasaway National Guard unit. It was actually a unit comprised of sort of the cream of the crop special forces guys from around the state of West Virginia. Um, these guys had to make their way to. Gasaway and accompanied Colonel Levitt to the crash site and they hit both crash sites. They didn't just go to the crash site. Um, you know, or if you, I'm saying crash site, but I'm sure they were just considering it a site, you know, um, they went to the site of the Flatwoods monster location. They also went to the site of that, um, downed aircraft report that took place over on the Elk River. And that's an important report because it takes place the same exact night as the Flatwoods Monster. It's an unknown crashing across the sky and crashing into a nearby hill. And it's within probably 10 miles of where the Flatwoods Monster was seen. So there's two crash sites. This National Guard unit investigated both sites. Um, Colonel Levitt did recount over the years and talk publicly about going to the crash site. He retrieved um, pieces of bark from the tree where the creature was seen. He also um, uh, took some samples of dirt and grass from the ground um, where the creature was seen, as well as traces of what appeared to be some sort of oil slick or some sort of substance that was on the ground. There were also um, tread marks, what, what looked like tread marks in, in the dirt, um, which were also, uh, of some importance. I believe he took photos of those and all of this was sent to the air force where it was subsequently never heard about again. Um, and he did make inquiries as to what, what was discovered, you know, with the oil and stuff, but he never heard anything back about any of that. Having said that, um, the one thing to keep in mind about the the tread marks is that there was a man that lived in town who claims to have driven up there that night in his pickup truck, and he claims to have been the one that left the skid marks. So I'm not sure, you know, the the tread marks in the 
dirt might have been a, a pickup truck. And he claimed that for years um, that he was responsible for the tread mark. Um, but some of those other, you know, the the pieces of the tree, the bark from the tree and the, the oily substance found on the ground, I'm, I'm definitely curious about all of that. Unfortunately, it seems like it's been sort of buried in a vault somewhere, probably with the government. Now you say two of the, two of the witnesses died of cancer. Was there any talk that there may have been some radiation admitted uh, from this crash site? Well, I, I actually believe a few of them died of of that. Now, Mrs. May, I'm not sure how she died. She lived a a pretty long life. She didn't she didn't pass away until 2009. Ed and Fred May, though, have actually had bouts of with cancer uh, three three previous times. Um, so they as well have had their own, you know, sort of run-ins with cancer, you know, but I mean, at some point it seems like a, a lot of people get cancer. So it's hard for me to read too much into that. Um, if you, obviously the, the, the mist, there was sort of a mist that supposedly covered the hill that night, um, when they encountered the creature that mist is not recalled by Ed and Fred May, although it was recalled in multiple interviews by Mrs. May and even Gene Lemon. They recalled seeing that mist. Um, Ed and Fred May don't remember the mist that was seen on the hill that night. What's strange about that mist is um, – well, there's a few things that are strange about a mist that supposedly makes everyone sick. But you know, there's this, the story about the dog. The dog that was with them that night, it ran into the mist. It supposedly turned around, ran off down the hill, vomited, and died. Ed and Fred May um, say that that dog lived another 11 years after this incident. So that story about the dog's always been repeated, but apparently it's not true. The dog lived. However, um, definitely after they came down off the hill after their encounter with the uh, the monster, it, it does appear that many of the witnesses were pretty ill um of course that could be just from shock you know it could be could be from their run-in had made them sick you know the the just the energy of what happened that night or something like that made everyone sick but um it's hard to say mrs may did say that she had to call the local doctor to come up to the house and see ed and fred that night because they were vomiting uh so so much after the encounter you oh, one thing, you know, one thing I should oh. I should mention too. the Air Force contacted Mrs. May shortly um, before she went on the We the People television show. So this would have been a day or two after the incident. The Air Force contacted Mrs. May and told her what she had seen that night was an experimental rocket. So and they supposedly did this by a handwritten letter. Um, so somewhere out there, it's possible that there's a handwritten letter. The letter was supposedly given to the editor of a newspaper. I want to say it wasn't – I don't believe it was the Braxton Democrat, although it's possible. I want to say it was a Charleston newspaper. Um, but either way, that letter would be a huge piece of the puzzle if that exists. Yeah, it, it certainly would. Now, um, you mentioned the dog – uh, there was also, is this the same dog that reportedly came back with its tail between its legs? Yeah, it's the, it's the same dog. Um, and the way the story was told is that it, it was accompanying the group. It went up the hill. It sort of ran ahead and into the mist. And when it ran into the mist, it, 
you know, became horribly ill, ran, turned around, ran back down the hill in fear, um, and then uh, vomited and died. So it's the same dog. It's just it. According to Ed and Fred, that didn't happen. The dog didn't die. Um, it lived, you know, quite a while after there. So again, that's a piece of the story that it's hard to tell. I mean, I hate to say it, but one of the first people there investigating the story was Gray Barker. Gray Barker is sort of a known um, he he falsified a lot of elements of stories that he told and that he investigated. And and I think he would probably even admit that. So it's you you have to take everything he says sort of with a grain of salt. I would say that with just about everything today, wouldn't you, Seth? Sure, definitely. (laughs) Um, this uh, case, the Flatwoods Monster, is also known by a couple of other different names, is it not? Yeah, there's a, there's a few. Um, the 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 Green Monster, of course, is sort of the name that the that the local media picked up, and the the Phantom of Flatwoods is the one that became famous locally. Um, in fact, early on, we we had actually considered naming our film the Phantom of Flatwoods. Um, but it, it's, you know, it, there were, there were actually many names given to it. The, the media referred to the being or the creature, the Flatwoods monster as being a Frankenstein like fire breathing thing. Um, where on earth they got the fire breathing aspect of the story. I have no idea. None of the orig- original witnesses claim to have seen fire emanating from this thing, but that's, that did come out. In the in the newspapers, in the press, that this thing was breathing fire, and you know it's it's stunk like bo and all sorts of stuff. The some of the headlines for the stories are really unbelievable. It's like you know a, a, a smelly fire breathing creature chases local hillbillies was one. There was one that said something about mo- a monster with bo lives on the hill. Um, so, so it was, you know, this was very much sort of a, a mocked story, sort of a, you know, a poke in the ribs kind of story when it was being covered by, by media. And of course that, you know, that is going to come down on the heads of the witnesses, unfortunately. And and there was definitely a lot of ridicule. But there was no, uh, really reports of smell associated with this or was there? There were. Um, in fact, the the smell was definitely strong. It was sort of an ammonia-like smell, which is interesting because that's also reported in some Bigfoot reports. But it was um, there. There was a smell reported when they got up to the top of the hill shortly before they encountered it. Um, in fact, Ed and Fred actually remember the smell better than they do the mist. They don't actually recall the mist, but they do recall there being sort of a smell in the air that night. What's really interesting about that book I mentioned earlier, the Paul Sagan book, Alien Flatwoods Monster, Paul sort of accumulated this lifetime of fascination with the Flatwoods Monster case because – on September 12th, 1952, he and his family were travel- traveling from their, I believe their home, they, they were traveling from someplace in West Virginia back to their home in, I want to say, New Jersey. I might be wrong about that, but they were traveling home through West Virginia. They were driving through this little town called Flatwoods on September 12th, right around 7 o'clock p.m. in the evening, and their car's brakes mysteriously went out. His dad pulled to the side of the road, and when he got out, it, they, the entire family smelled this very unusual smell. 
And there was sort of an electrical energy in the air, and, and the entire family recalled their the hair on their their arms uh, and the back of their necks standing up. But what they really noticed was that smell. Um, so their dad, you know, got back in the car in sort of a panic, and they got out of there as quick as they could. But what, of course, what Paul Sagan came to find out was that same night um, was the night of the Flatwoods Monster incident, and the hill that they had pulled over um, the car sort of at the base of was the Bailey Fisher farm Hill. So right around the time where they would have been, their car would have been stalling out would have been right around the same time where those seven witnesses were having the encounter with the Flatwoods monster on top of the Hill. So that sort of kickstarted Paul Sagan's lifetime fascination with the Flatwoods monster incident, which led him to investigate that story and write his book, alien Flatwoods monster. Again, his name is not Paul Sagan. That's a pen name, but I'm referring to him as Paul Sagan. Seth, we appreciate you coming on tonight to tell the story of the Flatwoods monster. And I certainly hope folks will check out the film. It should be out in just a couple of weeks. Uh, the Flatwoods monster, a legacy of fear and the website to, uh, check it out is smalltownmonsters.com. Hope to talk with you again. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. That's a Seth Breedlove. And when we come back, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to go down a couple of different roads in the first segment with my next guest, Jeremy Corbell. We're going to talk about the, uh, the patient 17 documentary, which you can find now on Netflix. We're also going to be talking about the Skinwalker Ranch and about the story of Bob Lazar. From the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest, I'm Jeremy Scott, and John Jeter is in the house with Paranormal News. That's next. Think you've heard it all? Just wait until Into the Paranormal continues. People are waking up. They're standing up to those pushing pesticides and GMOs as safe alternatives for a starving world. What about your crap? I tell you, I'd rather eat dirt. So, I drink Life Change Tea. It's an herbal drink, cleansing my body of toxic sludge and nasty chemicals, and of course, ridding the intruders that are hidden in my so-called food. And by the way, Life Change Tea is non-GMO and organic. No fillers, no yuck. Just a great defense against you-know-what. May the supplement force awaken you. Don't fall to the dark side. Oh, uh, sorry. (laughs) I went to the movies last night. Anyway, enough said. How do you get that herbal drink and change your life? GetTheTea.com. That's GetTheTea.com. You will awaken. You will get stronger. And you might even lose a bit of weight. So awaken to Life Change Tea and the many one-of-a-kind supplements at GetTheTea.com. That's GetTheTea.com. May the supplement force be with you. Select into the pair normal at checkout this is paranormal news i'm john jeter at one point i thought i would see the end of physics as we know it 
but now I think the wonder of discovery will continue long after I am gone. The world is remembering Stephen Hawking. The English theoretical physicist and cosmologist passed away this week at the age of 76. Hawking was known for researching gravitational singularity theorems in the framework of general relativity and the theoretical prediction that black holes emit radiation. He was the first to float the theory of explaining cosmology as a union of the general theory of relativity and quantum mechanics. Hawking was paralyzed by a rare early-onset, slow-progressing form of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS. He was able to communicate through a speech-generating device and a computer. Hawking is being remembered by scientists and astronauts around the world for his tireless contributions to mankind. I didn't do my scientific work in the hope of winning prizes and medals. I did it because I wanted to understand the universe. There's nothing like the thrill when you discover something no one knew before. I hope I will be remembered for my work on black holes and the origin of the universe, not for things like appearing on The Simpsons. Just over 17 years from now, an asteroid the size of a village could very well hit us. Officials are apparently so concerned about asteroid Bennu that a spacecraft has been designed to nuke any large asteroid coming at us. Bennu is 54 million miles from Earth and circling the sun at 63,000 miles an hour. By September 21st, 2135, there's a 1 in 2700 chance that it will hit us. The Hypervelocity Asteroid Mitigation Mission for Emergency Response Spacecraft, or Hammerman for short, is a project involving the National Nuclear Security Administration, NASA, and two Energy Department weapons labs. Nobody is saying how much this would cost to build or when it might be ready to take down space junk. Hammer was designed after a report by the National Research Council in 2010 warning of a threat of an undetected asteroid impact to human civilization. Connect with the news at ParanormalRadio.com. I'm John Jeter, Paranormal News, man. This is the most significant pieces of actual UFO and extraterrestrial data we have ever seen. Who are we? Are we alone? And where are we actually sitting within the architecture of our universe? I was recently introduced to a surgeon who claims to remove implants, nanotechnology microchips embedded by aliens. Dr. Roger Lear did confirm I was going to be patient number 17. There's a little spot here that shows through. Yeah, it's right there. We'll send half the object in for analysis and tell us whether the material is from off-planet. We're talking about something that is highly advanced and fabricated by an intelligence. Is that correct? Yes. I don't have any answers. I'm still doubting Thomas on what this could possibly be. I just want all this to end. I just want it removed. This is scarier than hell. We have a total of 36 elements here. This is the most astounding array of elements in a single sample I've ever seen. It's the biggest story of the 20th and 21st centuries. It's the, the biggest story never told. 
I've been trying for months to get a hold of Steve. He's changed his phone number, won't answer any of my messages. What are your thoughts? I'm telling you, it's not from here. This sample did not come from our solar system, much less the Earth. Searching for the truth. Asking the questions you really want to know the answer to. No rehearsed softies here. You're traveling into the paranormal. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That is the trailer for uh, Patient 17, uh, which you can uh, find on Netflix. And uh, my guest is the filmmaker, an American contemporary artist, investigative filmmaker based in Los Angeles by the name of Jeremy Kenyon Lockyer Corbell, an American contemporary artist and investigative filmmaker. He documents ordinary individuals and their extraordinary beliefs. His research has taken him into the worlds of nanotechnology, aerospace exploration, exotic propulsion systems, UFOs, the mystery of the Skinwalker Ranch, and what he calls the phenomenon. Corbell has documented the surgical removal of alleged off-world alien implants and the work of Dr. Roger Lear, the late great Dr. Roger Lear. His latest documentary, as we've just heard, is Patient 17, now available on Netflix. With access to NASA, he has filmed the analysis of anomalous metamaterials alleged to be physical evidence of extraterrestrial nanotechnology from UFO landing sites. His films reveal how ideas held by credible individuals can alter the way we experience reality and help us to reconsider the fabric of our own beliefs. I have seen it myself, and here to talk about Patient 17 is Jeremy Corbell. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. It is it is my pleasure. Now, I want to talk about this case of Patient 17, uh, who was the subject that is featured in the documentary that folks can get on Netflix and uh, and watch, and I would encourage that they do so. Um, patient 17 is, well, reportedly the 17th patient of Dr. Roger Lear, uh, who is known for removing these implants from people's bodies. How were you introduced to this patient? Right. So this is uh, Dr. Roger Lear, and he did 17 surgeries throughout his career of alleged implant removals. And I was introduced to him by a colleague of mine, a friend named Ruben Langdon. And I actually didn't want to do it. I, I thought it was really out there, really bizarre, and I didn't think I could move the needle forward on the information on the subject. But Dr. Lear was very convincing, and it was upon meeting patient 17 that really convinced me to make a whole movie on it. So did you meet uh, patient 17 uh, initially at Dr. Lear's office? It was actually right in the surgical room. It was a pretty, you know, strange situation. So I'm asked to go in and film this alleged alien implant removal. And I meet this guy and he was not what I was expecting. You know, as he likes to say in, in my film, you know, he has no insanity in his family and he's healthy as an ox. And he was just a soft spoken, you know, gentle individual who just kind of shattered my whole concept of what was going on there. He wanted answers. And so it was up to me, I guess, to participate in that and try to find him some answers. And he did he remain skeptical through the whole process? Absolutely. Yeah. If you watch the film, it's now available on Netflix, which is nice because everybody can watch it. Uh, you'll see that he was skeptical the whole time he remains skeptical. Yet at the same time, 
he he can't deny his own abductive experiences. And it was, I think, those experiences that led him down the path of trying to see if this object that they removed from his leg had anything to do with those abductive experiences. And and so uh, does he know how it came to be that he woke up one day and was playing around and noticed that there was something inside of him that wasn't there maybe the day before? You know, he was riding his motorcycle and he felt extreme pain in his knee and leg area. And that made him go and get, uh, you know, proper scanning. And that was about 10 years before the removal surgery. He knew he had a foreign body. It was, uh, you know, denser than, than bone. And he just kind of let that go, didn't know what it was. But then it was upon meeting Dr. Lear and conveying some of his experiences that it was suggested to him that this might have a, a role in his abductive experiences. And so he says, well, you know, it's not like it's in my lung, it's in my leg. So let's take it out and have it analyzed. And we both thought, as you kind of see in the film, we both thought it was just going to be a part of a Tonka truck or something like that. They pulled out of his leg. And indeed, it was completely anomalous. It was not what at all what we expected. And, and this kind of fueled the fire a little bit more to try to get answers for what it was that was removed from his leg. And you take this to a to a uh, uh, a specialist who tells you what? Well, a variety of specialists. So first thing we did was analysis. And then from analysis, we did interpretation. There are four or five different tests done. The ones that were most revealing were the broad spectrum elemental analysis and the isotopic analysis. This is where you look at elements or alloys and you can tell exactly what it's made of. And it's made of 36 different elements, some of which are rare earth elements. Uh, the most complex element usually or complex series of elements you'll find in like a common nail would be like five elements. So this was, you know, highly complex alloy. And then the big deal was the uh, isotopic analysis where we got the zinc analyzed and out of the four types of zinc, uh, they can tell the the ratios in that zinc, what's typical for terrestrial uh, ratios within zinc. And then what we received, the results we received were far outside the scope of terrestrial ratios, meaning this alloy, that it, it, it was not created here. It was not embedded within the earth or part of earth's structure and so that was kind of how it all started and uh then from there we have more questions have to get more tests so does patient 17 ever recall a situation in which he was implanted no he recalls a number of abductive experiences where he you know in his mind these are very clear these happened to him he he hid it from his family he hid it from his church he really didn't talk to many people about it uh, but these are the experiences that he has and he remembers. It was Dr. Lear who actually suggested that this foreign body in his leg might have something to do with it. Again, we, you know, we were just going for the ride, you know, saying, well, let's find out. And, and then we were very shocked to to find out these results that we got back from the laboratories. So uh, what sort of um, goes on prior to one of these uh, surgical operations and and what does Dr. Lear use in these procedures? Yeah, it was really kind of a, a comical situation. You know, I, I walk in, we're right in the surgical room. So what I was told was that there's a pre-screening psychologically, making sure that people just aren't crazy because there's a lot of that. And then making sure that people do have an object that's denser than bone. So most likely an alloy that's somewhere in their body that is removable. So like not embedded in the brain or something. So a leg, very easy. 
So once they go through all of that, you've had abductive experiences, you're not crazy. And then you also have this object that is retrievable. Those are kind of the prerequisites, I think, that Dr. Lear set up before his death. And, uh, you know, patient 17 obviously passed all of those. And he was eager to get it out and have it analyzed, kind of a human adventure. But again, none of us expected the results to be anomalous. And I was able to take the results to a number of different nanotechnologists, uh, meteorite specialists, for example, at UCLA, just a bunch of people to kind of look at this and try to tell me what it is that I'm looking at. Across the board, you know, the consensus is we need more tests. So that's what I'm trying to do now. But with Dr. Lear out of the picture and having passed away, nobody was doing any of this analysis or this work. So that's what you see in my movie is you see this journey of trying to get answers for patient 17 on if this object has anything to do with his abductive experiences. How long did the procedure last, Jeremy? Uh, from the first incision all the way down to actual stitching them back up, you know, I would say a few hours, and that's because they couldn't quite retrieve the object at first. It was hard to find. We're talking about a needle in a haystack here, even with really good optics. Um, there is some humor in my movie. I mean, some of the stuff was so absurd. Like at first, they were checking for this object with a stud finder, which is used in carpentry. And I, I found that kind of hilarious. And there was, and they were actually misusing the stud finder. So from the very beginning, this was kind of like a circus in my mind. And, uh, but you know, they did retrieve the object, pull it out, did it through scanning electron microscopy. And then that's right about when Dr. Lear passed away. So then I personally got it tested for broad spectrum elemental analysis and isotopic analysis. And uh, that's where we really got this hit on a very anomalous result, uh, you know. And then again, one result, it needs to be replicated in order to be taken seriously. But I did talk with the laboratory and make sure they went through the right process of triple washing uh, to make sure that the zinc was not contaminated. And they stand by the results. They don't interpret the results for me, but they stand by the results. So that's kind of what you see in the movie. It's it's a wild experience. But my movie is more about the human perspective and about the ideas put forward by Dr. Lear and the people he worked with, as well as the, the thoughts and emotions and a roller coaster of experiences that patient 17 went through. What was it like being around uh, Dr. Uh, Lear? Did did you get the sense that maybe um, – well, I'll let you what, – what, what was the uh, the impression from – uh, being around him as he did this uh, operation. Well, you know, it's funny. Funny is just like the first thing that happened was I was introduced to Dr. Lear and I knew he wanted me to make, you know, turn my camera on his surgery. And it's very interesting. I, I won't, you know, I, I won't deny that. It was, it was interesting, but I just thought, well, I'm, I'm, hello? Yeah, yes, go ahead, Jeremy. Oh, sorry. I thought, uh, am I going to amplify, you know, this story and this vision uh, or, you know, so I, I said to Dr. Lear, look, if, if you are pulling the wool over people's eyes or you are manipulating the data in any way to try to confirm, you know, your own ideas, I'm going to out you. Are you sure you want me to, to make a documentary on your story and your experiences? And he got kind of mad and he was like, yes, Jeremy, I do. I've been doing this for two decades. There's something to it. So I started doing some research myself into like, you know, Dr. John Mack and and, and all of the research that he had done into the abductive experience. And I started to think, well, this deserves, you know, light being shined on it. So I will film the surgery. And Dr. Lear took it very seriously. He believed what he was saying. And he was not 
altering the data in any way. He was trying to get to the truth. Now, he's taken out seven, he's done 17 of these surgeries. Um, has he been able to get the implant out in each and every one of them? Or, because I, I know sometimes um, these implants are elusive. I mean, you try and you pry and you just don't get it. Yeah, so there's, you know, there, there's a lot of history to Dr. Lear's work that I didn't go into because I couldn't control it. It was not a controlled environment where I could look at it, see the sample, go through the analysis you know, where I'm in the room. So I, you know, not being a, a trusting person in that way, I wanted to watch one sample go through the whole spectrum of, of tests and, and take it further if we could. He has done 16 other surgeries, right? You know, 17th surgery was his last surgery as, as he died in the middle of, of filming the the movie. So he never got to really see the final results of this object. I'd really be curious to see what he thought about it. But he did do those other implant or alleged implant removal surgeries and they did do analysis on those pieces and from what i understand it is you know there are anomalous results i just i can't stand behind it because i wasn't part of it and i didn't follow each of those samples through nor do i have the time to do that i'm still trying to determine what this one sample was and and if this sample turns out to be completely anomalous like it does already seem to be and we can prove it with three more tests then I will open up the archive on the on the older samples and try to find out if those two were anomalous. So from a guy who wasn't quite sure if he wanted to make the film to even wondering if he should bring out his camera if he were to expose Dr. Lear for being unethical or any anything like that, uh, after this is all said and done, um, patient 17 has had the operation and you've had the specimen analyzed. What do you believe is going on here? Yeah, I, I mean, I was definitely shocked where this went. Uh, you know, that is definitely true. I think everybody is speculating w without proper analysis and interpretation of that analysis that can be verified and can be replicated. It's really hard to take a position. I think that it is abundantly clear that there are non-human intelligences engaging humanity since the beginning of recorded human history. I have no qualms with that. We have military reports tracking this phenomenon you know, since the, you know, basically the beginning of reports, but are they interfacing with human beings? Are these intelligences interfacing with human beings in the form of implants? And that I don't know. That is so wild. And it is so out there for me. I really can't take a stance on that because we haven't even proven what the materials actually are yet, but we have taken a big step forward with my film patient 17 in that all of this is documented and out on the, the mass market so people can now look at it, be exposed to the data, and give their opinions and interpretation as well. So at least we've taken a step forward. I do think there's something of merit to the abduction phenomenon, uh, or else I wouldn't be looking at it. So I do think there's something of merit, and I think that it deserves and kind of begs further uh, discovery. So that's what I tried to do with the film. What was the patient's uh, thought? Uh, he didn't seem like he was maybe all too convinced. Well, he goes back and forth. You know, there's a big part of him that doesn't want it to be true. And there's a big part of him that is, you know, look, it would explain everything. It would explain and, you know, make him realize that experiences that he had, you know, the, these abductive experiences, that they weren't fictitious or imaginary. So in one sense, he would find a sense of validation 
if this was a strange alloy like it seems to be. Uh, but on the other hand, maybe that's worse. So he he is conflicted. You do see that in the movie. But ultimately, he just wants to live his life with his wife and his really cool life. I mean, he just wants, like any of us, to to be happy and, and do his job and what he wants to do in life. So this is kind of something that really threw him for a loop. And I think it continues to do so. Now, is this done via a, a microscopic incision through the flesh? No, man. They cut a big old, <laughs> a big old cut in the leg and just pried it open with metal tongs. I mean, I don't shield you as a viewer from any of that when you watch the film. I mean, it's it's they go in there, <laughs> and and they have to search uh, a little while. Where do they eventually find it? You know, right about where they thought it was. It's just that we're talking about, you know, a kind of, you know, something the size of a piece of pencil lead. So it, you're really you're using ultrasound optics to know about where it is, but then you kind of got to go digging for it. And uh, so they, they did find it. They did a few other tests that were not what I would consider in controlled environments. So I can't really speak to it, but they did a Gauss meter test, which measures if there's an electromagnetic field around the object. And it was pinging every time they brought it to the leg, which is highly strange. I mean, you bring it to a, a battery on your camera and it will ping, but you know, it shouldn't be pinging off this little object in his leg. It seemed to be doing that when it was in his body, which is something that has been reported. But again, it was not a controlled environment as far as I'm concerned, so I can't really quantify that. But uh, this object was removed. It's absolutely an interesting object, 36 different elements, and uh, has a strange isotopic composition that indicates something from off-world. So if that remains true after further testing, then we have something we can really stand behind and say this is strange. And the name of the individual who examined this object and found these 32 elements or 36 elements? Well, it was actually Northern Analytic, which is a laboratory that was able to do the isotopic and elemental analysis. Separately, we went to SEAL Laboratories in Los Angeles and did the um, the tele or microscope uh, looking at it that way and just kind of getting an idea of its basic structure uh, through the um, microscope laboratory. And then I guess further testing would be to basically replicate the two tests of the broad spectrum elemental and isotopic analysis. So that's hopefully what we're doing. So it's not just an individual as an accredited laboratory that did the analysis. And then there were people who did an interpretation for me. Who has this specimen right now? That's in custodianship of who Dr. Lear's advisor was at the time. His name is Steve Colburn. And for a long time, as you'll see in the film, that became an issue of being able to continue the analysis and, and going through the data and getting the object looked at by other laboratories. However, after the film, I feel that we've remedied that. Steve is actually the one who sat down with the patient and, uh, and shared the results with him because Dr. Lear had passed. He did. he did, yeah. He was able to give his interpretation, which to me was problematic. I mean, he did talk about the basics, that there are 36 elements and that sort of thing. But he was trying to convince patient 17 that there was meteoric iron inside of this, as if it came from a galaxy far, far away. Uh, I took it to the head meteorite specialist at UCLA. He wouldn't go on camera, but he did look at the object's results with me and determined it absolutely was not meteoric iron. 
So that is a conflict in opinion there, but that's interpretation. Interpretation is open to interpretation. But I kind of take the word of the head meteorite specialist over somebody who maybe, you know, wants to believe. So the fact it's not meteoric is actually a double-edged sword. On one side, it takes away the theory that people might have that maybe this guy just got hit in the leg with a meteorite or something like that. Uh, it, that, that is not the case, which then creates a greater mystery, which is that if it's not from out there and meteoric iron, well, how does it have these isotopic ratios that are indicating non-terrestriality? Jeremy Corbell is my guest, and he is the filmmaker behind Patient 17. It is available on Netflix right now. Um, we would uh, advise you to go to extraordinarybeliefs.com as well to check out some of his other work as well. He's got a couple of other documentaries, which I want to get to uh, in the next couple of segments. Uh, since we have about oh, 90 seconds or so before we must take our top-of-the-hour break, uh, let's talk about uh, the latest video that was released by uh, Tom DeLonge's To The Stars Academy. Uh, this now makes number three. Uh, it is just blowing up online. And uh, I, wa- I want you to tell us after the top of the hour about the story that you broke uh, of the Tic Tac UFO. But but talk about this most recent uh, uh, video uh, leak. Have you Have you seen it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I was able to see it and have some information both from the inside and out. It's a very interesting video. Uh, I do see some things in it that I think the public will find interesting, just the way that the object is locked onto and the kind of the excitement of the pilots when they're able to do automatic locking onto the object. It is interesting, yet to be determined what it is. East Coast 2015 or 14, 13, it's at least, at least a year apart from the gimbal video is what my sources tell me who, who would know. All right, so we'll come back and we're going to talk more about that with Jeremy Corbell. After the top of the hour, let's all take five or so to breathe, and then we will return with hour number three from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. I'm Jeremy Scott. He is Jeremy Corbell, and we'll be back after this. Into the Paranormal. take Viagra? Are you tired of overpaying for your pills? What if you could get the exact same results for a fraction of the price? Guaranteed. Well, now you can with sildenafil, the active ingredient in Viagra. With 20 milligram generic sildenafil tablets, you get the exact same results of Viagra for less than $2 per pill. And again, the results are guaranteed. That's right, absolutely guaranteed results for a fraction of the cost of Viagra. So give your wallet a break and call us toll-free at 800-511-9761 to get your generic sildenafil delivered discreetly to your door. And of course, while saving hundreds of dollars, you'll also be saving time by saying goodbye to those long, embarrassing pharmacy lines once and for all. Again, just call 800-511-9761 and get your generic sildenafil with a 100% money-back guarantee. Getting your pills doesn't get any easier or cheaper than this. So call 800-511-9761 now.
watch your step. Hide under your blankets. Whatever you do, prepare yourself for what's coming through your speakers into the Parabnormal. My guest is Jeremy Cormell. He's a filmmaker. Patient 17 on Netflix. Go check it out. Also at his website, ExtraordinaryBeliefs.com. We've also got his social media links up at ParabnormalRadio.com. So uh, check him out, follow him, like him, and uh, I'm sure he would appreciate that. Um, we've been talking uh, about uh, the work of the late Dr. Roger Lear and of Patient 17, who had this device, whatever it was, removed from his body. And now the work continues uh, to get this thing analyzed and to search for answers on what it actually is. Speaking of searching for answers... There's been a third video released by the Two of the Stars Academy, Tom DeLonge's outfit, that uh, apparently has blown uh, uh, blown uh, up on social media. Uh, this thing has been seen uh, millions of times over, but uh, it doesn't necessarily all add up, does it, Jeremy? Right. I mean, there's a lot of questions that people have naturally as we're given, you know, video, sometimes without location or date. And so that can be very confusing. Luckily, I had a heads up because I had been working on the first announcement for two years prior to that video being released. It's known as the Tic Tac video, UFO encounter from 2004 Nimitz. So I was able to speak with a number of the primaries involved with this encounter uh, you know, way prior to it becoming popular or known, which is great because I got the inside track. And uh, it was a real event. And the video that you're seeing was from that deployment. So it's something I think it's great that we've been given. And then out came the, the gimbal video and then the third video that they call Go Fast. This latest video, uh, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, this one is a little bit confusing for people as it's kind of, from a farther distance, but you see an object traversing over the water. Uh, there's been some analysis on the exact speed of the object. Again, it's an unknown, but we're being given this footage that has been released through basically the Freedom of Information Act system, and we're able to see what the military thought was an unknown. And if you hear the pilots that are in the recording, I mean, they're kind of elated that they were able to get this thing tracked on the Raytheon system. Now, did this come from um, the DOD or the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency? Because uh, in many of the cases, they say that uh, it did not come from them. Right. So there's one quote that was picked up and actually spoke with the writer. It was for CNET. And she got a direct quote saying the Department of Defense did not release these videos. That's the only source where that is specifically said. And that's more semantics than anything. It was property of the Department of Defense. It was cleared through the traditional means for publication to the public. So to say it did not come from the Department of Defense is kind of sleight of hand. It was authorized through the Department of Defense so that we, who owned the video so that we, the public, could see it. So it was released by our government. And I think it's great. Look, Let's go through this really simply. What are the facts? What do we know? There was an announcement, 22 million was set up to fund the advanced aerospace 
threat identification program known as ATIP. New York Times broke that story. There's a lot of uh, complaint about the name because the Pentagon spokespeople, three of them made two identical statements, all of them, you know, saying that it was advanced aviation threat identification program. Well, Lou Elizondo was very clear. He did not mince words. It was aerospace threat identification program. And actually, that's what I knew it to be prior to this. So I do believe that is the correct name. It was a secret UFO study. There's nothing to be said about that. It certainly was a secret UFO study. We were told in 1969 with the end of Project Blue Book that concluded our government's interest in UFOs. Of course, we all suspected that was not true. But now we have confirmation that that was not true. Uh, There was obviously frustration within our Pentagon and some of the people in the military, like Lou Elizondo, who was working for our government, for the people, that this wasn't being taken seriously enough and that it required better investigation. So we're kind of seeing that now as people are coming forward to bring this into the public arena. Uh, there, There's more to the story than just that, how everything links back to a very interesting ranch. Uh, I'm making a movie on that called Hunt for the Skinwalker that will kind of go into that. But here's where it gets crazy. Uh, the program did not end. We're being told the program ATIP, A-A-T-I-P, ended. And it, it did not end. They say it ended in 2012. Well, if you notice, these videos are from 2015. So the program did not end. It continues, and it was in existence, actually, prior to when they say they got the funding, which I found very interesting. Uh, this is not an anomaly. This is a trend. These events are increasing in frequency with these unknowns flying with impunity within our airspace. Uh, there is government involvement with the DIA. That is now public information, which it wasn't before. So we know that our defense intelligence agency, which is a premier intelligence agency within the Department of Defense, has taken this subject very seriously. We also know that there are alloys that are that were being held at specially built skiffs at Bigelow Aerospace. Very little is said about these alloys. I would suggest that your listeners pay attention to the idea of atomic layering. If this story comes out, that will be what it's about, is the fabrication of these elements and this alloy in just a perfect atomic layering. We also know, and a lot of people miss, that there are medical studies that were done for UAP encounters by our government, so UFO encounters by individuals within our government who had a, a close uh, experience, a prolonged experience, and there's medical studies that were done. I hope that information comes out. And also where it gets crazy is a lot of this study was tr- sabotaged because people within the DIA believed that what we were engaging wasn't uh, non-terrestrial technology, but was in fact demonic. And so that's where it gets really strange, this whole story. But, you know, whenever you throw humans into a story, it's got to get strange. Now, there was a quote in late December, so about two weeks after this whole revelation. um, Apparently, the Sun Online reached out to the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is the spy arm for the DOD. And uh, here's what the, the quote says. Although it doesn't attribute it to any particular individual, just a spokesperson, there is some confusion about this program and claims about its purpose in press reporting. The Defense Intelligence Agency has not released any information, files, or videos. But what you say is while they may have not released it themselves, they certainly authorized the release. So do we know who leaked the videos? 
Nobody leaked the the videos. The, this was an official release in the sense that they went through the normal declassification process. I'm very skeptical of the Sun with anonymous spokespeople. The Pentagon doesn't have anonymous spokespeople. You name the spokesperson. That's their job. So without providing a name, I wouldn't call the Sun the best source of our news. But yes. you know, again, with CNET and with the author of that article, it was very clearly stated by a named spokesperson that you know the you know that they didn't release anything. Well, well, again, that's total BS. That these were and went through the typical release process. So the DOD itself didn't stand up and say, "Here are these videos. What do you think?" A private citizen, Lou Elizondo, who just happened to work for the government and be the head of, of the ATIP program prior to coming forward, released these videos as a citizen, though. So I think that's very much semantics. These are real videos from real engagements from our military through the high-tech uh, technology of, of FLIR looking at unknowns, as, 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 far as, as far as we know right now. They are unidentified. And so this is the situation we're in. We like to look at it skeptically as a community, a society, you know, which is good. But at the same time, we have to put a little bit of weight on the fact that these are coming out uh, through individuals who are highly credible. I guess it remains to be seen if we're going to see additional videos uh, released oh, by uh, uh, the To The Stars Academy. Uh, and if there are, do you have any insight on what those may be? Well, I think big big things are planned. Uh, you know, like with any plan, they can change. But yeah, I think everybody should keep paying attention. I think we only have what's given to us at this point through that organization. But I do believe that these were gifts. I think these were great. They bolstered the conversation, propelled it into the mass media, everything from Fox News, BBC, CNN, NBC. These were everywhere. And I think it uh, invigorates the conversation and starts shining a light on it. So I, for one, am grateful this has come out to the degree it has, and we should look at it critically and skept, you know, have skepticism. But at the same time, you know, we should put some weight into what has been released. And there is more coming. Is there something that the general public has missed in these announcements? Yeah, that's kind of what I was going over a minute ago, which is that the the the, the fact that they have alloys associated with UFOs. I mean, they're admitting to alloys. I I I, I believe. That, that there's a lot more that, that we have, but they've admitted to alloys. So this is something in the original articles from New York Times and Politico that you can look up yourself. It is something that I think will play a big role later. If you have physical evidence, materials, kind of like what I was looking at in my film, Patient 17, that is something you can put your finger on and start to analyze from a scientific standpoint. So yeah, I think the alloys is something people aren't paying enough attention to just because there's not more information about it. And also the medical studies, when you get people looked at and you have them evaluated from a medical perspective because of the nature of their encounters with these unknowns or UFOs, that is an implication of a much larger awareness and interest from our United States government in these objects and the effects they have on people. So that is another thing I think people need to pay more attention to if more information comes out, which is the medical studies. Why is this happening now? Uh, why does it seem like Tom DeLong, a rocker turned ufologist, is able to manufacture all of this, you know, um, over someone who's been in the vault in the UFO field for fifty or sixty years? 
Well, I think he used his his identity as his passport. I think people might underestimate celebrity and, and and the ability to speak clearly with people and give them an option to work with you. I mean, when I've talked with a lot of pilots who are on the Nimitz and radar operators and all the contacts that I've made into that case, everybody knew Tom because Tom had actually played a rock show on the Nimitz once. So I think we can't underestimate using your identity as your passport to get things done. So do you think that 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 what he's released so far is credible? Well, I think that's uh, for an individual to decide that people need to make that decision for themselves. Uh, I happen to know a number of the people that are on the board and are working directly to help assist this process, and I find them extremely credible. So I think having people like Chris Mellon on that board in that panel, Lou Elizondo, uh, I, I think that's absolutely credible. And I think that these individuals have a genuine interest to get this information out. So, of course, there's always tricks and turns and things that can happen. But, yeah, I, I do believe that we should pay attention to these announcements. Absolutely. Do you believe that Bigelow Aerospace is involved with the funding of this program current day? Because we know they got a lot of money uh, during the time that this money was being, you know, uh, flushed uh, by uh, by Harry Reid into the program. But if it's still going on today, it still needs funding. You know, well, first of all, yeah, Bigelow has stepped out. You know, his personal interests, from what I understand, have been satisfied on the subject. And he has stepped out from active involvement in these programs. But let's demystify this a little bit. There's a lot of misinformation out there. It is my understanding that Bigelow did not receive a bunch of money for this. He put a bid in for this project like anybody would put a bid in. It was a public bid. And he won the bid. And he won the bid because he had the best cost and also because he dumped so much of his own personal money into this. Robert Bigelow is probably the most misunderstood person in the world of ufology. He has put more of his own personal money into the investigation of UFOs than any other individual in history. And so I think that he's done a great service for the public and for people. And of course, it's private information if you've paid for it. But the stuff that was a government project at Skinwalker Ranch when they created BASS, which was a DIA relationship with NIDS, which is the organization that Robert Bigelow set up to study the ranch. We know that happened. We know Robert Bigelow put his own money into it. And I actually think that it's not like he made money on this. It's It was that this is his interest. He's but, always so been interested in this. you don't think that he got any of the money from uh, the funding that, that Senator Harry Reid secured Robert for this Robert Bigelow program. personally does not need money. No, he didn't personally benefit from these programs. From what I understand, in fact, he dumped a lot more of his personal money into these interests because because he has personal interest in it. He has been looking at this like any of us. He just has the extra tool of having finances and good you know government connections. So yeah, no, I think he's totally misunderstood. What is he? How has he wronged the UFO community? He hasn't. He's brought more to light than anybody. He gave MUFON $1 million, $1 million to get their act together and try to make something out of what they were doing. And they messed it up. So Robert Bigelow has done a real service to the UFO community. I think that, you know, history will show that.
And, and I agree with you as well. It's just amazing, amazingly how uh, things are um, skewed. In fact, it wasn't too long ago, uh, May of last year, that he was on uh, 60 Minutes saying he's absolutely convinced that aliens have visited us. Wasn't that a great interview? I loved it how was. he didn't even allow the question to be finished when she was asking, you know, does he care that people think he might be kooky looking into this stuff? He goes, I don't give a damn. And I, I loved that. You know, he's a guy. And he's got grit, and he just says it as it is. And no, I really respect what he's done. Yeah, me too. Now, uh, we're going to talk about the Skinwalker Ranch. We're going to talk about Bob Lazar here in the uh, last segment. Um, I want to know, though, from you, Jeremy, have you ever personally witnessed a UFO? You know, funny enough, I'm always the guy with my back turned, or I go in the house to get something, and something spectacular happens. So up until maybe... Two years ago, I, I could say no, I, I hadn't. Uh, but at, at this point now, I, I have witnessed an anomaly, and I have no idea what it was. But yeah, I, I've seen something. It's not as dramatic as I'd wish it to be. I didn't see a, a mothership or a flying saucer or anything like that. But I did see something come within. And I guess you were completely sober at the time as well. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, <laughs> it's funny. We always have to quantify that because we feel like we wouldn't know the difference if we had a beer, you know? We would know the difference, but, uh, you know, I was totally sober, and I, I did see something interesting. I, I don't know what it was, but it was something unlike anything I'd seen before, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, well, there it is. Uh, he, he's had an encounter, and he's not sure what it was, uh, but, you, but you believe that uh, there is something, there's something to it. Yeah, I mean, I don't have the luxury of disbelief, uh, you know, from even before I, I had seen anything on my own, which, which I still don't know what it was, but... Uh, I, I don't have the luxury of disbelief. This is something that is well documented within our own history that these objects and experiences and performances, in fact, have been going on for a long time, both paranormal, as you'd say, and, and also which includes UFOs. This is something that is undeniably happening to humanity. Would you hope to have a, a, an abduction experience, Jeremy? <laughs> I don't think my wife would like that very much. No, nope, no, nope. I'm I'm very happy here uh, on Earth. Well, I, you oh, know, look, there's just... a lot of mysteries out there, and I, I don't know the answers to them. But I, I would like, of course, to see things w- with my own eyes. So hopefully, I'll I'll be able to witness more. You know, the seeker is the finder. You got to look to see, and uh, I'm looking. You know, I mean, the worst that could happen to you happen to you is you just lose a couple of hours of time, and you come back with a scoop mark. Right, that happens every other week, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I want to hit the break at the bottom of the hour here. I want folks, though, to hear um, the trailer here for uh, the uh, the part that I want to talk about when we come back, and that is uh, the work from uh, Jeremy Corbell, my guest. He's got a, another documentary that I want to uh, talk with him about. It's called Hunt for the Skinwalker. When you try to study something like the Skinwalker Ranch, you've got to cast a really wide net because ultimately this mystery, we don't know what the hell it is. You know there's more to a story and you're not allowed to talk about it. That's a human burden. Yeah, I mean, it was it was frustrating in the beginning because Colm and Bob Bigelow would tell me these stories about what was going on the property, and I couldn't tell anyone. There's a lot to uncover in all of this, huh? It's overwhelming. This is stuff, uh, material that's specific to the ranch. I've saved every scrap of paper ever since uh, Dr. Colm Kelleher and Bob Bigelow sort of brought me into the loop. Is there more to tell now? There's a lot more to tell. This is 
30 or 40 hours of material that the public has never seen before. Sort of like a veil of secrecy. We are being manipulated by some kind of an intelligence. The things that happen on the ranch are real. What we don't know is who is responsible and what the game plan is. And again, that is the voice of uh, George Knapp. Uh, for those yeah. who don't know, right, Jeremy? Yeah, that's George Knapp. He's my mentor in journalism. He's a hell of a guy. He's been going at this for decades. Yeah, and uh, I, anytime he does one of those investigations on the uh, the the channel in Las Vegas, you should tune in because. And then he he has, of course hosts that weekend show as well that we that we know of um, so well. Where is the Skinwalker Ranch? Skinwalker Ranch is a 480-acre property in northeastern Utah. Uh, 480 acres northeast Mm -hmm. Utah. Uh, Is it occupied? Yeah, correct. It is private property. It is occupied. It was the location that was used, uh, bought by Robert Bigelow, and it was used as a living laboratory, to use his own words, for the study of the UFO phenomenon. Uh, historically, the Uinta Basin has been an area inundated with, with this bizarre phenomenon for as long as humans have lived there, from paranormal to uh, apparitions to UFOs. I mean, you name it, Bigfoot even, you name it. And, and it's been experienced in the Uinta Basin. So this ranch is perfectly set within that kind of hot spot area and was able to be purchased and used as this living laboratory. It's not that the ranch itself is special. It's that it was able to be utilized in that capacity by by Robert Bigelow and, as we know now, by the DIA. We're going to have to pause. John Jeter's got paranormal news, and we will return with final thoughts from Jeremy Corbell, filmmaker and investigative reporter. Stick with us. Miss the show live? Listen to it anytime, as many times as you'd like. Subscribe to our podcast at ParabnormalRadio.com. Live nationwide, Saturdays 6 to 9 Pacific, 9 to midnight Eastern. Travel with us into the Parabnormal. This is Paranormal News. I'm John Jeter. The next pandemic to hit us is a contagion so deadly and mysterious that the World Health Organization really doesn't know much about it. Disease X has made the list of potential future world epidemics for which there is nothing we can do to stop. Officials say it's a known unknown, even if it hasn't been discovered. What was the idea of putting this disease that you said does not exist at the end of our list? So disease X is a concept. Let's say it's a placeholder to be sure that if we have a new disease, completely new disease, or disease we know but not enough and suddenly emerge and is more severe or spreading everywhere, we will have a space to put the disease and to know that we need to put efforts on in terms of research to get drugs and vaccine, let's say. Something like this has the potential to wipe out, oh, just a few million people, man. Will it spread by chemtrails, a meteor, or extraterrestrials? What's scarier, this thing on premise or the fact that it has yet to be discovered. The U.S. is considering putting a military force in space. Space is a war-fighting domain, just like the land, air, and sea. 
We may even have a space force. President Donald Trump proposes funding a branch of the military that would operate outside of Earth's atmosphere. Last June, House lawmakers proposed dividing the Air Force into two separate branches, one dedicated to space ventures. The Space Corps was not part of the National Defense Authorization Bill, but there were several new directives that could turn this idea into reality in the near future. Because if a war happens in space, it's better to be prepared than sit and watch it be obliterated from all these light years away, right? Remember the Psycops? Yeah. Connect with the news at ParanormalRadio.com. I'm John Jeter, Paranormal News, man. quite like this one and we like it that way into the pair of normal with jeremy scott just a couple of housekeeping notes before we roll on into our final conversation with jeremy kenyon locker corbell he is a filmmaker and investigative reporter his mentor is george knapp who we heard from just a moment ago and we'll get back into the story of the skinwalker ranch in just a moment i do want to let you know uh that next week on the program uh, next weekend, we're going to have two shows for you, two for the price of one. How about that? Many of you have inquired about the Sunday special, which was a part of uh, of this uh, program uh, in the uh, late part of 2016. Uh, then we expanded to three hours uh, in uh, 2017 and coming up on our one year of doing three hours and uh, I don't know. I guess I'm just not getting enough of this. And so I'm going to do an additional show for you on the final Sunday of the month uh, at 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern, starting next Sunday, the 25th. My guests will be Bigfoot researchers Cliff Berrickman and Chris Minier, both from the Pacific Northwest, who have been on the case of this recent discovery of Bigfoot prints, in air quotes, found in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, Cliff uh, or Chris was the first on scene there. The tip came into Cliff, and uh, they both went out and documented these footprints. So could there be a development in the Pacific Northwest, which is known to be a Bigfoot um, hotspot, kind of like the Skinwalker Ranch? You'll have to find out next Sunday. That's March 25th at 5 Pacific and 8 Eastern. Check your local listings. Not every one of the affiliates will be able to air that program, but of course it will be live for you on the TuneIn Radio app and at ParabnormalRadio.com. Also next Saturday night, uh, the regular show, I'll be joined by Reed Summers with an urgent message about the extraterrestrial presence in the world today. Also Don Allison is going to be here investigating the science behind paranormal events and meeting a ghost at Gettysburg. Make sure you go to ParabnormalRadio.com and you can check out the list of shows upcoming. We encourage you to subscribe for as little as $3 a month 
or $30 a year to get access to the podcast. You can listen to them. You can download them. You can put them into whatever app you'd like to play. Um, but you've got to subscribe in order to get those uh, to get access to those uh, shows. And the way to do that is at ParabnormalRadio.com. When you're there, I would encourage you to support uh, Life Change Tea. They have changed my life. They can change your life, too. Over at GetTheTea.com. That's get the T. TEA.com. All right. I think that takes care of just about everything. Um, the place to uh, to get uh, caught up on uh, my guest tonight is at ExtraordinaryBeliefs.com. ExtraordinaryBeliefs.com. Also, he's got a website for Patient 17, which is the documentary that we talked about in the first half hour, which you can find now on Netflix. And a new film set for release this year is the one in which we're talking about right now called Hunt the Skinwalker, in which Jeremy examines the rich history of events surrounding Skinwalker Ranch and the scientific teams that studied it. We've learned that this is a private property, 480 acres in northeast Utah, and was a, a place that was bought by Robert Bigelow, who we've been spending some time talking about this evening. Used as a lab to study the UFO phenomenon. So uh, when did Robert Bigelow uh, purchase the property? How long did he own it? And how long was this uh, lab supposedly uh, in operation, Jeremy? Yeah, so I believe he purchased it in 1998, if I'm correct on that one. And he employed the NIDS team, which is the National Institute of Discovery Science. He created his own team of crack PhD scientists to look at the phenomenon on the ranch as a living laboratory. And then as we know, the DIA got involved and they created an organization called BASS, B-A-A-S-S, and that was the joint uh, program but between the DIA and the NIDS group who had been on the ranch for quite some time already. So looking at it now, and he just sold it recently within the last uh, year and a half or so. So he had a lot of time to really investigate this ranch and surrounding areas, although it was George Knapp and, and the the lead of that program called NIDS, Dr. Colin Kelleher, that wrote the book, Hunt for the Skinwalker. And I think your audience should definitely pick up that book because it will give you the whole background to Skinwalker Ranch, everything you need to know in order to watch the movie that I'm bringing out this summer in 2018 called Hunt for the Skinwalker, same title as the book. So it really explains what was going on, what was found, but there are cases that are occurring today. So my film brings you and weaves between the the historic footage that was never able to be released before in the form of a documentary during the NIDS investigations at the ranch, and I have that footage, and then I weave it in with new interviews that I've been doing over the last couple years. So the uh, the area is a hot spot where all sorts of uh, paranormal activity uh, takes place. When were the first reports of this? Yeah, no doubt it's a hot spot, meaning there's more activity there than than most places on Earth. Uh, these reports started at the time of the conquistadors. I mean, it was it's it's since humans occupied that area is is when it started. And and the claims. This is what's so interesting. It's not just UFOs. The, the claims of what lurk in the shadows there, it goes far beyond UFOs. I mean, they're bizarre events. Uh, they're perplexing. They're terrifying. So, you know, vanishing and mutilated cattle, 
unidentified flying objects, the appearance of kind of huge otherworldly creatures, flying orbs and lights. Uh, it's just if something weird happened, it happened in the Uinta Basin. That's what's so incredible about this is the reports are not confined to just your standard UFO reports. And, and there is there is evidence. There's there's physical evidence left behind in some of these encounters. And so it's something that our government was interested in studying. I certainly am. Now, uh, is you say it's not the ranch, but it it is certainly the the land in which the ranch is on. How big of an area do we believe this hotspot is? Oh, it, it, it's actually pretty huge. So there is a sovereign nation, right? The the Ute Nation that occupies that land. So it's a Native American sovereign nation. So it's all around the Uinta Basin. I mean, it, it stretches the entire Uinta Basin. The the ranch was interesting because it was a place that could be purchased and used as a laboratory. But these experiences are reported by, I mean, I'd say every other person has had some sort of experience in that area. Anybody that spent a significant amount of time in that area has some sort of otherworldly experience. Is there a connection between the scientific study at Skinwalker Ranch and the Pentagon releases that we've been talking about? Oh, a- absolutely. And that that's something that I think is going to become much more clear. That was something that was hinted upon in the New York Times and political articles. They, they did mention Skinwalker Ranch and Harry Reid. It is my understanding that that $22 million that was allocated through a black budget program was initiated because of the understanding of what was going on at the ranch. So that money was spent for a tip. It was spent for the investigation of the DIA at the ranch itself. So those connections have yet to be made, and I'll be making them. I guess stay tuned as far as that is concerned. Now, you went there recently. Yeah, yeah. I've spent a, you know, I've, I've had a number of opportunities uh, to go to the ranch and to the area in general. Of, of course, you do need an invitation as it is private land. Nothing's going to be seen from tailgating outside of there. It's private property, and you're going to be on the wrong end of a shotgun if you go out there. It is rural land, and it is ranching land. Uh, but the Uinta Basin itself, that whole area is, is a, as I'm saying, is of great interest. But yeah, I've been able to be at the ranch a number of times, and there's good relationships with the current owner, and hopefully that can continue. We've also made, my team has made unprecedented uh an unprecedented relationship with the tribal members. They've allowed us for the first time ever to actually spend time, take footage, camp on the land and uh, take that footage off of the land. So you're going to be seeing that in the film as well is interviews and testimony right there from the hotspot authorized, which has never been authorized before. And that's definitely because of the road that George Knapp has paved, you know, the, the, the good relationship that he's created uh, through the years of investigation there. You mentioned earlier apparitions, Bigfoot, UFOs. This runs yeah. the gamut. Yeah, it's really astounding. I mean, some of the one of the experiences to give you some meat to it. You know, one of the scientists was on the ranch and reported seeing this dark, huge creature crawling out of a three-dimensional orange glowing porthole. I mean, it sounds crazy. But this is something that really traumatized the individual who was part of the NIDS team, saw it coming out. They could really see the definition of this 
porthole looking thing through the night vision because the night vision optics give you a much higher quality in low light. There's also reports of huge dark apparitions basically possessing or taking over one of the scientists' minds and and speaking through his body. I mean, just the most bizarre stuff. And then, and then of course, there are the discs and the flying saucers and the craft and um, all sorts of reports. And then the story of Bob Lazar. Now, I, I mentioned earlier uh, in the program uh, that Stanton Friedman is retiring. Stanton, a well-known ufologist, has been doing this for well over 50 years and has reached that point in time where where he is retiring. Um, but in Stanton's appearance on my program last year in which we discussed his life in this field, he was very passionate about the story of Bob Lazar, who he poked hole after hole uh, in, in his story. What is your take on the story of Bob Lazar? Yeah, Stan certainly didn't poke hole after hole in Bob's story. He, he, you know, unfortunately, Stan has taken a position, has built a career off of that position. And in some cases, people are just wrong. And Stan is just wrong in this case. You know, he's trying to say things that George Knapp said in his first report about Bob Lazar, that George Knapp couldn't verify all the details of Bob Lazar's credentials or his educational history. He said that in the first report. And Stan says that as if it's new information for the last 20 years or 30 years. It's pretty ridiculous and sad. But at the same time, you can have difference of opinion and try to look at a case and understand it better. What I'm trying to do with my film on Bob Lazar, which is an authorized documentary, because, you know, we really haven't heard much from Bob over the last 30 years. You have maybe three hours of footage at max because George Knapp has been able to pull him out you know, for clip to clip kind of thing over the years. But I am showing an in-depth look into the life of Bob Lazar with complete access to his life, going through the story, revealing new information, and also just trying to make sure that people like Stan don't insert their fabrications, fictitions, and fantasy into the Bob Lazar story just because there's a hole in it. So that's what I'm looking to do with the film. I hope everybody will have more information to judge the story upon. But it's really sad. There are people that make ridiculous claims about Bob and what Bob has said when, in fact, he never said it and never did it. And it's just a way to diminish him as an individual, to diminish his story, when, in fact, I think we should be listening to his story and deciding for ourselves if we believe it. Now, of course, for those who aren't familiar with the work of Bob Lazar, he claims to have worked on reverse engineering extraterrestrial technology at a site near Area 51, a test facility called S-4, and that the UFOs use gravity wave propulsion. Um, and so what access are you, are you given for this documentary? Complete and total. So Bob Lazar has let me into his life into his personal circles, even into his cell phone, to basically be able to contact anybody that I want to learn more about his story. And yes, you said it right. He says he studied an alien propulsion system for the U.S. military, and almost 30 years later, his story has not changed. And that's what I find so interesting. There are a lot of things we we don't know about Bob that we can't prove, but there certainly are things that we can prove. And it is my understanding that Bob actually did work there. I mean, from everything that I can tell, from talking to the people closest to him and people far away from him, uh, 
he's telling you the truth. Now, it's up to you to decide that. So I'm going to lay out all the information, give you everything, and, and let you come to your own conclusion of if you find value in what Bob has been saying for 30 years. But what a wild story. I mean, he is definitely the most influential person in the world of ufology, you know, as well as controversial. I mean, he's had an exciting life, jet cars, explosives, flying saucers. I mean, Balazar has had a wild life, but he remains the singular most famous and controversial person in the world of UFOs. But the reason you know about Area 51, the reason you know about any of that is because Bob came forward. He shined a light on this. So I think it's interesting, and I think everybody's going to find this movie very, very compelling. Now, but there were some claims that um, that universities in which he claimed to graduate from actually had no degrees on record for him. Yeah, George Knapp ran into this a whole bunch. So did Los Alamos. Los Alamos said, we don't know a Bob Lazar. In fact, he, he never worked here. Actually, initially, when George Knapp called, they said they did. Then they Then they recanted that, and they said that they didn't. And then George Knapp was able to find in the Los Alamos phone directory, Bob Lazar's name. We found uh, he was able to find a front cover story about Bob Lazar, the physicist at Los Alamos and the Los Alamos Monitor. So even Kirkmeyer admitted to it, which was a subcontractor that Bob worked for. And then they retracted that. Well, I think the nail in the coffin on this, other than talking to other employees who said, of course, Bob was there is you know, that I found Dr. Robert Krangle. Uh, and Robert Krangle, Bob Krangle, he was a physicist or a scientist at Los Alamos, and he remembers Bob from security briefings. So I brought that information out a few years ago. Definitive, absolutely, Bob Lazar was there. But the best evidence is footage I have of Bob Lazar going through Los Alamos, one of the most scientifically uh, secure facilities on this earth. And there's footage of Bob going through there. He did work through there. So, yeah, those problems always happen. They're, they're at the very beginning, that started, you know, oh, we don't know, Bob. He never worked here. But time and time again, all that information is being debunked. You know, he, he did work in scientific capacity at Los Alamos, no matter what his degrees were. I don't care if he was homeschooled. I don't care if he lied about his degrees, Al although I have no reason to, to doubt him at this point other than I can't find his degrees. He did work at Los Alamos, and then that allows the possibility that he would get picked up just as he said he did to work in secret projects at the base, Area 51, subbase S4. Now, there have been many, many um, theories and stories and claims over the years about how we get this technology, this reverse engineering ET technology Maybe um, there, maybe the extraterrestrials gifted it to us. I don't know. Was he able to to give you any insight into that, Jeremy? Yeah, that's a difficult one because Bob is a very literal person. He's had thirty years under the microscope by the public, and he's careful with what he says because people always misconstrue it. So all we know is that Bob claims when he was there to see nine flying saucers, nine disks of unknown origin. Now, it was told to him, it was told to him that these were, um, you know, we were trying to back engineer them, and certainly we were. I mean, he was attempting to do that. He said it was ridiculous. There's no way to back engineer these. We don't have the material science in order to do that. But he did see them. He did see one of the craft in operation, and he was inside of one. 
So it is very interesting that we have these. Now, were they gifted to us? Were they from crashes? There was no sense that these were damaged discs besides one of them had a, had a hole in it, which he was told they were just testing the material science of it to see if they could puncture it. But these craft looked perfectly intact. And the, the interesting point about that is that the element 115, which is the alleged fuel source that Bob saw when he was there and actually worked with the element 115, stabilized, is that we had supposedly 500 pounds of it. Now, Bob never saw the 500 pounds, but this was just part of his briefing. Well, if we had 500 pounds of that, that's not something you can create on Earth. That's something that had to be brought here as cargo. Very well said. We have a, a, a question from Joe on Twitter, and this might have to round out our conversation. Uh, isn't it entirely possible Bob Lazar was used to put out information about Area 51 as part of the powers that's uh, that B's plan of painfully slow disclosure. Sure, this is something that Bob Lazar has even uh, thought about himself. Was that he? It's very easy to discredit him. I mean, he lived a kind of wild life. Was he used in the propagation of this kind of slow dis- disclosure? It, it is entirely possible. However, some people take it further and say, "Oh, maybe he was tricked or something like that. He didn't really see all of this stuff." You couldn't fake some of the stuff that Bob saw. He actually worked with the propulsion devices. So yeah, it is possible he was used for slow disclosure because somebody wanted the information out. But remember too, his life was in jeopardy. He was threatened. It was the only reason he went on air with George Knapp was to really save his own skin. So if they were trying to get him to just talk about it, it was a really weird way to do it and to put all this light on Area 51 at a time when they didn't want light on Area 51. So I don't know. It's a mystery. Jeremy, it's been a fascinating program tonight, talking about all of these subjects with you. Um, Tell my audience uh, where they can uh, interact with you on the web. Sure. Thanks, Jeremy. So you go to ExtraordinaryBeliefs.com, and everything goes from there. All of my projects, all of my films, you can see everything at ExtraordinaryBeliefs.com. And thank you so much for having me on. you got a great show, Jeremy, and I appreciate it. So, you know, thank you. It is my absolute pleasure. That's uh, Jeremy Corbell, and uh, again, uh, he told you where to check him out. Uh, if you miss any of that, just go to ParabnormalRadio.com, the new ParabnormalRadio.com. We've changed things around a little bit and uh, would love your feedback, but all the links are there. And so just um, if, if you're on Twitter or Facebook or even if you just do the whole pl- the plain old website thing, uh, his links uh, are there. Um, we had two filmmakers on, on the uh, air tonight. Seth Breedlove, Jeremy Kenyon Locker, Corbell, both are credible in my mind. They tell the stories as they need to be told without injecting their own personal opinions or biases into the uh, stories. I think that there are enough people out there who do interject that into the content that they create, but these two gentlemen certainly are not them. They are the ones who will tell it like it is. Uh, My kind of people. You know I tell it like it is each and every week uh, on the program. There was one story that I didn't get to in the earlier part of the program. Amongst all that other stuff that I talked about. And it is a darn scary story. I played for you not too long ago on this program about uh, some audio clips of the uh, president... Of the former president 
Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, the ability for technology to change the appearance of one's voice. And I said, just wait until the moment when it can happen to you and I. Because while it can happen to celebrities, that's because there are clips after clips after clips of them available on the Internet. Heck, if folks subscribed to my program and downloaded all my shows, they could probably make me say anything. Well, here comes the story of an algorithm that has been created by artificial intelligence by a Chinese tech company that can clone, clone, that is, a pretty believable fake voice using just 3.7 seconds of audio. That's all it needs. 3.7 seconds of audio. Bring these things with And that's all it needs. And it can clone uh, a voice. I was trying to give you a, a clip of that. Let me. We're running out of time here. I know the time's winding down. Ask her to bring these things with her from the store. Okay, there you go. So that is a voice that has been cloned using very, very little audio. And I didn't do it justice, but I will be sure to talk about it again next week. And we'll play more of that audio for you on either the Saturday or the Sunday show next week. From the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest, I am Jeremy Scott. Night, night. This man has just entered the gas price madness zone, pushed over the edge by skyrocketing gas prices. The remedy? Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Hey, wait a minute. Did you just say there's a free app I can get that'll actually pay me cash back on every gallon of gas I buy? Yes. Escape the gas price madness zone with the Upside app and earn real cash back on every gallon of gas you buy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Enough of the theatrics. Just tell me more about this Upside app. Okay. It's super easy. Just download the free app and use it whenever you buy gas. Upside users can earn hundreds of dollars in cash back. Wow. Thanks, announcer guy. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code MINUTE for an extra 25 cents per gallon or more cash back on your first fill-up. You can cash out anytime. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code MINUTE for a 25 cents per gallon or more bonus on your first tank. Hey, Mike, what are you doing way up on that ladder? You're going to hurt yourself. Oh, I'm trying to unclog these gutters. That's smart. I had water damage from my gutters last year. It cost me ten grand. Yeah, wait, $10,000? Yeah, and from over here, it looks like water's been pouring over your clogged gutters, and it's probably doing real damage to your foundation. You need to do what I did. Get off the ladder and call Leaf Filter. Yeah, but I need to get these gutters flowing now. That's why you need to call Leaf Filter. They'll clean and realign your gutters and install their exclusive micro-mesh screen system so nothing gets in your gutters except water. So Leaf Filter protects my house from damage and means no more gutter cleaning for me? Bingo! Plus Leaf Filter has an industry-leading lifetime warranty, so your gutters are covered for life. Thanks, Frank. I'm calling Leaf Filter today. Don't go another day with your home unprotected. Call 1-844-300-LEAF or go to tryleaffilter.com for your free gutter inspection. Call 1-844-300-LEAF or go to tryleaffilter.com right now for an extra 15% savings. Call 1-844-300-LEAF or go to tryleaffilter.com. That's one 844 300 300 leaf. 
Thank you for supporting our advertisers. It keeps the show free for everyone. This statement has not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. No offense, but are you a little fat when you look in the mirror? How do you like to learn the secret to losing three to five pounds a week without joining the gym or going through any crazy diets? It's called Body Sculpt RX. For the last two decades, we've helped countless people lose thousands of pounds. And now... It's your turn. Learn how to lose weight with one simple phone call and no prescription needed. You'll see an amazing difference in a matter of days. Don't believe us? We'll offer you a risk-free money-back guarantee. So if you're ready to start losing weight, call right now and get a free month's supply with your first order of Body Sculpt RX. Call now. You have nothing to lose but the pounds. 800-395-4207. 800-395-4207. 800 395 4207. That's 800 395 4207. You've heard me talking about My Patriot Supply for a while, and things aren't getting any easier. From global conflicts and unstable supply chains, when shelves run on empty, you don't have to panic. Choose peace of mind with their three-month emergency food supply to keep your shelves and your stomach full. In an emergency, you won't have the time, resources, and ingredients to prepare your meals in the way you're used to. But you can get a leg up with My Patriot Supply. It's a three-month emergency food supply. You don't have to skimp. It's ready when you are. It's disaster-proof. And no food boredom here. 20-plus flavorful food and drink varieties. My Patriot Supply is offering a special deal for Into the Parabnormal listeners when you go to parabnormalradio.com slash food. Get your My Patriot Supply today from parabnormalradio.com slash food. That's parabnormalradio.com slash food. 